intolerant movies. We in the killing Nazi business. Cousin, businesses are booming. Their name. The Germans call them the Bastards. Their target. Killing Hitler. But a mission like this. Punch those goons out and burst in their blasting. Never goes according to plan. Yeah, just thinking ahead. From director Quentin Tarantino. Brad Pitt. Yes, 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 yes. Inglorious Bastards. Rated <laughs> R. Inglorious Bastards was released in 2009 as Quentin Tarantino's biggest box office hit. The story of a team of World War II soldiers and their top secret mission behind enemy lines, the film is a fantasy historical tale of Nazi cruelty, allied courage and Jewish retribution. My name's John and the two fellas talking Italian with me are Matt. Say, I'm free to sing to your Nazi balls. And Westy. Well, if this is it, old boy, I hope you don't mind if I go out speaking the kings. It's 1944 and all the right movies are on the QT in Nazi-occupied France. And you know, we think this might just be our masterpiece. Hello and welcome to All the Right Movies, a bushwhacking, Nazi killing, guerrilla army, and a podcast on classic and hit films. Yep, secondly, are. a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Straight, no junk in it. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> this time round, we're back in World War II territory. Mm-hmm. We are. It's Quentin Tarantino, Brad Pitt, and a whole lot more as we talk Tarantino's modern World at War classic, Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yeah, great. Before we get the baseball bats out, though, should we have a little Patreon chat? Yeah, why not? Let's do it. So if you listen regularly to our ATRM Classic Podcast and would like us to carry on doing it, you can help support that by becoming an ATRM patron. Patrons get access to our bonus podcast episode called Double Feature and access to our whole archive of bonus episodes and ATRM Classic episodes like this one. The archive's huge. And we have a load of other classics in there. Mm-hmm. If you're a QT fan, we have both Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, we do. Or Brad Pitt, we've got Fight Club and Seven. Mm-hmm. And lots of other huge films covered too. Yep, definitely. There's no 33-year-old Scotch, but still, give it a go. Still, Is there not? <laughs> <laughs> I'd sign up if there was. Yeah. You drank it all, Westy. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah, shit. <laughs> So to find out more and sign up, please visit patreon.com forward slash all the right movies. Or yes. if you're an Apple podcast user, you can subscribe directly on there now as well. Just look for the subscribe button and it's simple as that. Oh, mm-hmm. easy peasy. Yep. Lovely. For now though, once upon a time in Nazi occupied France were the inglorious bastards. Yeah. As ever, the people will want to know what Westy thinks. So Westy, oblige them. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I put this one up and uh, I've wanted to talk about it for a long time because there is just so much to talk about. It's yeah. so thick. It's quite foreboding, really, to think about how much there is to actually get into and how much of this has been studied over the, over the years. But when I saw this at the cinema, it was complete on the first watch. I just left absolutely bouncing, just thinking, there's a film mm-hmm. for <laughs> cinema, people, yeah. about cinema with World War Two, And it was really funny and it was really fucking violent. And the soundtrack was <laughs> excellent. And I just like, I wanted to go back in and watch it again and again and again. And that's how I felt when I very first saw it. In later viewings, later in repeat viewings, does it have the same strength? Does it have the same impact? Does it hold up after all this time? That's what I'm really excited to talk about, and that's what I'm really excited to dive into. So, yeah, mm. I'm looking forward to this one. 
yeah, well, I look forward to every new Tarantino movie that comes out. And this one was no different in 2009. I remember liking the film at the time, if finding it all a bit strange. Blowing away mm-hmm. Hitler and Goebbels with a machine gun was and still is mental. It's fine for me. <laughs> <laughs> and me, my strongest memory is somebody who I knew at the time being adamant that in the tavern scene, the drinking aftershock, which they definitely are not. <laughs> <laughs> definitely are not. <laughs> <laughs> but coming back to it for this, my opinions have changed in some ways, stayed the same in some ways. There's a lot in Inglorious Bastards that I love. And I'll talk about all that. Mm. There's some things here I'm not such a massive fan of in one or two areas. What I'm saying is I've rewritten the ending. Obviously. But we've got a subject matter of huge historical significance, an all-star cast, and it's Tarantino. So the deal is some crazy behind-the-scenes stories and a load of laughs, I would think. Yep. Yep. Well, I'll back up your rewriting of the end and laugh. There is a Wesley theory in here. There's been a long time coming, but there's one coming. Oh, wow. Oh, it's going to be amazing. So how about you, Matt? You make that deal? I'd make that deal. Great deal. Um, <laughs> this was the film where I got back on side with Tarantino again because I'd loved his first three. Thought Kill Bill Volume 1 was fine, bit regressive. Didn't really enjoy Volume 2 and I still think Death Proof was one of the worst films I've ever seen. Wow. Hated that. <laughs> I, well, I was going to say one of his worst films. I don't think it's one of the worst films I've ever seen but it's definitely not his best film. Oh, it's definitely not his masterpiece, put it that way. No. So when this came out, Tarantino didn't have much of a bar to get over for me, but this one at the end, I felt much like Westy. I, I was almost like punching the air, like, yes, he's rediscovered narrative. He's remembered that there's an audience watching this film, not just him. Yeah. So coming back to it now, as you'd expect, it's very, very Tarantino, and that can be both a good thing and a bad thing, and I think we're kind of all on the same page in, in that respect, so this one should be really fun to get into. So, Inglorious Bastard was produced by Universal Pictures, the Weinstein Company, a band apart, and Babelsberg Film Studio, and released on August the 20th, 2009. Filmed on location in Germany and France, it was written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, and it stars Brad Pitt as Aldo Rain, Melanie Laurent as Shoshana Dreyfus, Christoph Waltz as Hans Lander, and a lot more people that we'll get to. Definitely. Let's dive in then, do you think? Yeah, let's go for it. Let's do it. Okay, get your calabash pipes out. We're talking the beginning of Inglorious Bastards. Ah, 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 wait for the cream. Wartime Nazi-occupied France and things are about to go off. We're going to be looking into two of our main characters in Shoshana Dreyfus and Frederick Zoller and the beginning of their relationship of sorts. <laughs> mm. Yeah. But before that, it's the Jew hunter and the Nazi hunters. Yep. It is. It is. So the first sequences of Inglorious Bastards bring us one of the most acclaimed opening sequences maybe ever. Yeah. When SS Corporal Hans Lander visits the home of French farmer Perrier Lapadite, followed by mm-hmm. the demise of some hapless Nazis at the hands of the Bastards, specifically Donnie the Bear Jew Donowitz. Yeah. Westy, if a rat were to walk in here right now, would you greet it with a saucer of your delicious milk? I probably would, you know. I didn't mind him. <laughs> How's the opening for you? The opening, I mean, I absolutely love the good, the bad and the ugly. Oh, no, sorry, Inglorious Bastard. But the opening is, it's, it's fantastic. And it's such a homage to classic, classic cinema. And this is one of the things that really stood up for me when it just, you have that wide shot and it says 1941 underneath it. 
but this has been studied it's been talked about at length there's just a, there's an hour and 20 videos on youtube about the analysis of this scene <laughs> yeah. and camera movements and the way it plays out it's the perfect lesson in suspense when people said that tarantino couldn't write suspense you can see where his influences are coming from but you can also see how well he is he directs these actors and how good his dialogue is and how that build of tension is just absolutely fantastic i mean there's just little bits that get me with this the change in power as he moves over and breaks the 180 degree rule the way he only greets charlotte who's the aryan looking daughter and the other two have got dark hair and brown eyes and yeah. she's got blonde hair and blue eyes and he just goes to her and each one's lovelier than the next aryan features it's got that kind of vibe to it where there's all these subtle little nuances when he checks her pulse as she walks past and he holds her mm. wrist just to see if her heart's beating and it's christoph waltz for me here it just to start, i remember watching going who the fuck is this guy Where's this guy come from? He's yeah. absolutely phenomenal in it. I remember this sequence, and when it comes to the point where he says, you are sheltering enemies of the state, aren't you? There was an audible, like, <gasps> in the yeah. whole cinema. Everyone was like, no, and, he's, and he just nods, and there's that single mm. tear runs down, and there's just that shift of power all the way through it. Just before Christmas, my boiler went off, and you know when he's getting washed in that bowl? I was like, that's really, really familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Chopping wood. <laughs> chopping wood and getting washed in a bowl. But, just, but that, the payoff, when they come in and he just he puts the marks on the floor and since that, mm-hmm. says that's where they are and continue my charade, masquerade or whatever he says. And they just start blown away at the floor and that music swells. And you're just mm-hmm. like, what? And it just hits you like a ton of bricks. The way he just builds that tension and then it just explodes literally in a cinematic flare of music and visuals. It's just like, look, I'm Quentin Tarantino and I'm making a huge film. So like it or not, this is what it's going to be like for two and a half hours. <laughs> and I just absolutely adore it. Yeah, it does have a reputation of being one of the great opening sequences, and for good reason. I yeah. think it's exceptional. I mean, mostly it takes place mm-hmm. inside like a very basic farmer's cabin, but it's so well shot that it's never dull. That shot you nah. mentioned, Westy, yeah. where the camera circles around Landa and Lapidita at the table, yeah. as Landa kind of turns mm-hmm. the screw with his dialogue. It's great visual storytelling, and there's loads to get into, but I want to talk a bit about the detail Tarantino puts into showing how Landa breaks the will of Lapidita, because there's mm-hmm. quite a lot of subtle things going on. Firstly, on walking in, Landa comments on Lapadit's daughter as being lovely, which is really creepy. Instantly makes Lapadit uncomfortable, and me as well. Yeah. Yeah. He then asks for a glass of milk, really subtle, but he's making it clear that everybody's there to serve him. And Landa constantly references the control Lapadit has. He asks permission to switch languages or to smoke his pipe, but by constantly asking Lapadit questions to which he can only really give one answer, he's really highlighting just how powerless Lapadit is. I mean, it's like... Jose Mourinho level mind games there. <laughs> and then his pipe's like Sherlock Holmes' pipe, isn't it? When he brings that out, it's just... Yeah, incredible. yeah, yeah, yeah. And Christoph Waltz, I mean, this was the first time I'd ever seen him in a film, and I was just like, yeah. wow. His delivery and that close-up as Lander lands the final blow. You are sheltering enemies of the state, are you not? Yeah. Massive yeah. that. And Tarantino yeah. said this scene's the best he's ever written, and I wouldn't disagree, to be honest. We could no, literally yeah. do a whole podcast on this one scene, like you say, Westy. <laughs> Yeah, 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 and that huge pipe is absolutely hilarious. It's hilarious, <laughs> but it's so powerful because that's where he breaks the rule. He breaks 180 degree rule and just flips straight back, and he cuts mm. to that yeah. to show that he's back in power. Bang! Yeah. It's very reminiscent of Once Upon a Time in the West to me because it's all about that patient build-up, yeah, and it's all about silence and the pauses that Lander just lets hang in the air. And that change in language is very disconcerting. Like he says, he's exhausted all the French he knows. Which is bollocks, because he's clearly fluent from what yeah. he said already. <laughs> yeah. He can clearly speak French. 
But then it's that realisation later on that he's gambling that the Dreyfuses are there somewhere and they can't speak English, so that's why he changes it, which I think is really clever. And I think Lapidite has been expecting this visit to some extent because he tells his daughter not to run into the house because yeah. that's going to look suspicious. But I don't think he's expecting Lander to be as polite as he is, which just throws him off entirely. Yeah, charm offensive. Yeah, exactly, charm offensive. And we know, like on first view, and we know Lander is bad news, but we also don't know what Lapidite is hiding. So the tension is ramping up and it's kind of there on two levels. Is Lander going to break him? And also, what is he hiding there? What What is the secret? So, yeah, it's a really clever build-up to a great scene. It definitely is. Lapidite is played by Dennis Menachier, who'd mostly been a French TV actor. He wasn't the first person Tarantino wanted as Lapidite. Jean Renault was asked, but turned it down. He said, roles as disgusting characters. No thanks. The role of a Frenchman who betrays a Jewish family is the caricature of the dirty Frenchman. Wow. String of garlic round his neck. Stripey jumper. (laughs) (laughs) He's finding the Da Vinci code, though, isn't he? I think Dennis Menachier is excellent. He brings loads of pathos to the role. He is. Yeah, he's brilliant. Mm -hmm. He said that he based his performance on his grandfather, André, who had actually fought in the French Resistance in World War II. Right. And when Lander breaks him and we get that close-up on Lapidite's face, you can see like the next 40 or 50 years of guilt he'll go through knowing that he gave up the driver's yeah. It's so yeah, powerful. Yeah. To go from necking a glass of milk in one go, which is ridiculous, to that yeah. in a few seconds is just incredible. Yeah, it's really, yeah. really good. It's when he messes up the language and he says we and then says yes. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Just little moments, fantastic yeah. stuff. Mm. And Matt, you've got form on this podcast of knocking it out the park like Teddy fucking ball game. <laughs> How's the opening for you? Yeah, loads of great stuff in this opening, and I love the build up to when we see Donny Donowitz, the bear Jew. Because it's the fact that, and we get our first Hitler scene as well, and it's the fact that Hitler himself has heard of this guy, yeah. and he's rattled Hitler <laughs> to the extent that he's sending out orders to not have this guy talked about. It's funny that good, isn't it? Nine, 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 yeah, nine, 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 nine. <laughs> really funny. <laughs> And then it's the fact that the German captain that they've captured as well, like, it isn't intimidating enough to see his comrades being scalped after they've been killed. There's something worse than that, and there's going to be this guy. And that's intensified with the fact we don't see him straight away. It's just that sound of the bat hitting the wall. And then the appearance of Donnie, like, he genuinely looks furious and scary. But I do just wish Tarantino would cast an actual actor. Yeah, yeah, I'm exactly the same, yeah. I'm not a fan of Roth as an actor at all. Like, his first few lines are fine, but it's when he starts whooping about the baseball game. I find it very hammy, yeah, very cringy. I think Donnie should be like Tommy in Goodfellas, like this angry little guy who yeah. everyone is terrified of because he's got this temper. Joe Pesci. It would have been massive with Pesci with a vest on. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine Pesci coming out. Vest, you know. <laughs> but, but Roth, he just doesn't have the chops to pull that off for me, unfortunately. So it is still a great scene. I think it's really funny how quickly that other German gives up the information that they need. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's yeah. right. So it's a great scene, but it could have been amazing with someone else in the role, I think. Is that Roth's line, isn't it? Like, two hits, I hit you, you hit the ground. It's, oh, yeah. it's really yeah. painful. He goes that. really squeaky, yeah. which I don't expect, which doesn't work. Yeah, the dialogue's great as well, it's a shame. Mm-hmm. I mean, as usual in a Tarantino film, the visuals are fantastic, and we see that here. After Donny beats Werner, the German soldier, to death, the other one, Private Butts, instantly tells Aldo where the German patrols are, and when he points it out on yeah. the map, it's like one shot where the camera whips between Aldo, Wiki, Butts and the map. Awesome, that. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. I like how Tarantino throws some grey and shade in there. I mean, Werner, he's brave as a lion, standing up to Donny the way he does. Mm, Just yeah, a pity yeah. he uses that bravery to support one of the worst ideologies in history. Mm-hmm. But yeah. the actor who plays Werner is called Richard Samo, and we've spoken about him before 
Do you know where? Not off the top of my head. Is he an alien in Return of the Jedi or something? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> oh, no. He plays Adolf Gettler, the guy with one eye in Casino Royale. Oh, oh right. right. When Bond kills him and doesn't say, he didn't see that one coming for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I would never have got that in a million oh, years. Never in a million, <laughs> years, million no. years. And the whole concept of the bastards mocking Nazis by carving a swastika into the foreheads. What a great idea that is. Yeah, it's brilliant. Really visual, brutal. That's just Tarantino through and through, that. Yeah. Yeah. Hugo Stiglitz is played by Till Schweiger <laughs> because he was born and raised in Germany. He'd always refused to put on a Nazi uniform for any role and Tarantino convinced him by promising that in every scene where Stiglitz wears a Nazi uniform, he would kill a Nazi. Oh, nice. <laughs> There's a nice touch with the uniforms where whenever we see the bastards dressed as Nazis, the uniforms are a bit like ill-fitting and blood-stained yeah. because they've mm. taken them from the yeah. bodies of Nazis, except yeah. for Stiglitz. Yeah. It fits perfectly because it was his uniform. Nice. And yeah. 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 I like the flashbacks that we get a couple of times as well to reveal Stiglitz's backstory. We get one here when Samuel L. Jackson tells us he killed 13 Gestapo agents. And then the one mm. in the tavern scene later on when we see him getting whipped, where Hellstrom keeps pissing him off by slapping him in the chest. Fight, fight! <laughs> really, <It's> really. <laughs> we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. <laughs> so as we've said, it's Eli Roth playing Donnie Donowitz the Bear Jew. But Tarantino actually originally wanted Adam Sandler but he had to turn it down because there were scheduling classes with funny people. <laughs> God, I don't know. Like, like Happy Gilmore, the golf club. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah <laughs> imagine. <laughs> yeah, I agree with you guys. I think Donnie's a good character, but I don't think Eli Roth is brilliant in the film. Sandler could have been no. great, kicking off. He could have been. Yeah, when you see him kicking off and punch drunk love, that type of like rage yeah. he brings. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I was thinking more Happy Gilmore, to be honest. <laughs> the water boy. <laughs> well, Roth said that clubbing Nazis to death was fulfilling a lifelong fantasy. And he also said there were real wool underwear. And he said, that will make you want to kill anything. Oh, God, I don't imagine. <laughs> yeah, he also said that his girlfriend at the time put some Hannah Montana music onto his iPod, which made it easier to tap into the violent side of the Bay Jew. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't he say as well he was dying to come out when Tarantino was like, right, action, I'm going to shout action, you'll come out. So he's doing press-ups in the cave just so he looked buff enough to come out. And he said every time he said he'd get like 50 press-ups, then Tarantino was like, no, we'll do this one tomorrow. He's like, fucking hell, I've just done like 150 press-ups. He just kept him going and kept him going. So he's furious when he finally came out, which, is, which works. Yeah. And also I know there was a deleted scene where we see Donnie buy his bat in America and he gets Jewish people to sign it. And yeah. you can't really see it, but one of the names on there is Anne Frank. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. Listen to that Anne Frank reference as well. Shoshana's dad, Jacob, is played by Patrick Elias. We see him really briefly under the floorboards in the scene we talked about. Right. And yeah. in real yeah, yeah, life, yeah. Patrick Elias' dad was called Buddy and he was Anne Frank's cousin. Wow. Fucking hell. Oh, wow. Small world. <laughs> Small Tarantino world. <laughs> the Tarantino verse. Yeah. So that's the introduction to Inglorious Bastards. Some great dialogue scenes, some great visuals, and a gory death. So far, mm. so Tarantino. Very Tarantino. Ticking all the boxes, yeah. yeah, no worries. From there, we jump forward a few years. Still Nazi-occupied France, but now we're at the movies. We catch back up with Shoshana, who now owns a cinema and is calling herself Emmanuel Mimieux and meet German soldier-turned-movie star Frederick Zoller. Their relationship drives a lot of the narrative. What do you think of it, Westy? Well, I picked this scene because I just thought, well, it's one of them ones that it seems a bit throwaway and a bit filler, 
But if you look at it and look what he's put into it, so the cinema, to me, is reminiscent of his cinema that he owns, the New Beverly in L.A. It just says, this is where you go. It's like the beacon of hope in that whole place. Yeah. <laughs> and there's just this little bit, these chat-up line is like, I always preferred Linda to Chaplin. So he's automatically just talking about cinema. So he's trying to chat her up, which is a terrible chat-up line. Imagine <laughs> just going into a pub around here and be like, I prefer Spielberg to Scorsese. Get fucked. <laughs> You've definitely used that before, Westy. Of course I have. And it's just, the subtitles here are great because when he's talking about the German he says, Mercy. And the fact that she's up a height as he was as a sniper and he's now the target and she's mm. now got control. That right. is, the, is both of their character parallels and that works really well. She comes down from the ladders and said, I'm French. We respect directors in our country. So yeah. Tarantino won, won at Cannes for Pulp Fiction. Of course he did, yeah but didn't win in the Academy Awards and lost to Forrest Gump. So that's <laughs> nice. obviously a nod to, like, in <laughs> France, we respect directors. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, adieu, we and Mercy are all in there. So it's, it's just, it's like this whole big mash of he's just ripping the piss out of all these people, showing their parallels as characters, showing who they are and where their dynamics sit in a scene that you think is pretty throwaway. Yeah, that first crane shot we see when we move from the cinema marquee and the camera kind of spins down and Shoshana comes out the door. I love that shot. Mm. Yeah, yeah, great. Beautiful little cinema too, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah fantastic. Love to go there. Yeah, I'd love to. Wonder if they do cheese mm. and nachos. I'd be straight in. <laughs> Should get you two working there. A couple of experienced old heads. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I? <laughs> Honestly, I think I hate Zola more than I hate Lander in this. I thought you were going to say Hitler there. <laughs> no, honestly, I think I hear more than Hitler as well. Because oh, really? after this, after this, you get the scene in the cafe, and he's such a smarmy little asshole. Oh, there's terrible. something really arrogant about him, like trying to pass himself off as this good guy, but wearing a Nazi uniform. And because hmm. there is that interesting argument, like is there such a thing as an innocent Nazi? Because what about all the regular guys in the army who just were conscripted against their will? You know, Saving Private Ryan examines that really well with the German soldier they capture. He says, fuck Hitler. You can't have that argument with Zola, though. There's just, like, this complete lack of self-awareness about him to not realise why Shoshana has taken against him. Like, he's invaded her country, and that just doesn't seem to, like, resonate with him at mm-hmm. all. So, like, it's a great scene. And I do love when Zola is talking to his colleagues, it's not subtitled because Shoshana can't speak German, so she doesn't know what's being said. Yeah. And we left in the dark as well. And she doesn't understand why people are making a big deal out of him. But yeah, I really hate this character. And it's really funny when she finds out he's a massive war hero and she just fucks off out of there anyway, yeah. just leaves him yeah, sitting there by impressed. himself. Yeah, Zola approaches Shoshana outside the cinema and she literally leaves to get away from him. He sees her again in the cafe and shamelessly has another pop. That's embarrassing behaviour. Oh, oh, he's awful. <laughs> and she's having a great time in the cafe. She's reading, she's drinking, she's smoking. Yeah. Piss off, Nazi. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And have you noticed the book that Shoshana's reading as well? It's called The Saint in New York by Leslie Charteris. Right. The Saint in Question right. being Simon Templar, later played by Roger Moore. Oh, okay, right. right. Yeah, that yeah. one, right. And yeah. The Saint, yeah. Yeah, crowbarring Moore into every episode now. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Go for it. I don't know about you guys, but watching a QT film, I'm constantly pausing it to spend half the time looking up all the references. <laughs> yeah. yeah. To Roger Moore. No, yeah. <laughs> Especially their ones. So Daniel Brule plays Zoller. And like much of the cast, he can speak several languages. He said later on that at the time he was cast, he wasn't perfectly fluent in French. So during his audition, when Tarantino asked him to speak some lines in French, he did them in part French and part Spanish, hoping Tarantino wouldn't notice. <laughs> Obviously, he didn't, and Brule got the part. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Very sneaky. I mean, to be fair, if you're fluent in English, German, and Spanish, I think I can let you off if only being semi-fluent in French. 
Well, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't notice if people were mixing all that together. No, definitely not. <laughs> so we find out in the film that Shoshana inherited the cinema from Jean-Pierre and Ada Mimier. There was originally a scene with Madame Mimier and Tarantino wanted Isabel Hooper to play her, but they couldn't agree on a salary, so she was replaced with Maggie Chung, but ultimately the scenes were cut from the film anyway. All right. Yeah, Isabel Hooper would have been great in the cast. She would have been. Yeah. Saying that, though, I do think the very lean storytelling with, like, minimal backstories works great, especially for Shoshana. Yeah. Her whole family was murdered by Nazis. That's definitely a powerful enough motivation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that's all you yeah. need. And that is the beginning act of Inglorious Bastards. Some great characters, a famous opening scene, and some classic QT dialogue. Yeah. A pretty good start, I think. Very good start. Can't wait to see where it goes. The director. The director of Inglorious Bastards was the one and only Quentin Jerome Tarantino. He needs no introduction, of course, nope. but Inglorious Bastards was QT's seventh feature film, sixth if you count Kill Bill's volumes one and two as one film, which is ridiculous, yeah. but mm-hmm. fine. <laughs> yeah. Tarantino's first war and period film, Matt, how's his direction on Inglorious Bastards? Well, the thing about it is, he's someone who absolutely pours his personality into his films, so... Just a bit. <laughs> just a bit. So, and, and that's interesting, because like, whatever film of his you pick to watch, you just get this insight into his headspace at the time. And I think with this one, I think Tarantino's starting to realise there's more to his films than being just cool. And I think he, he's starting to wrestle with bigger themes and trying to bring a bit more maturity into his work. So if you compare, like, the East Lights and Reservoir Dogs... It's so horrible to watch, but at the same time, he kind of makes it cool because he puts Steeler's Wheel in there and he has Michael Manson yeah. dancing around and he gets a bit of a laugh out of it. It's still brilliant, of course. But he, for the most part, he doesn't go that way. You know, we've talked about the opening scene and that's played so down the line. It's played for nothing but, but horror, basically, the horror of that situation. It's the same with the basement scene that we'll talk about later. It's nothing but pure attention and he doesn't try to likes it to stick a, a song over the top of it to show like how deep his record collection is and I think he's reining back on those more juvenile instincts where he would cram in every pop culture reference he can think of and he's just letting these scenes play out as they should do to their best I don't think it's totally consistent I think there were still moments where he lets that kind of juvenile aspect of his nature come through which we'll definitely talk about yeah but He's definitely wrestling with the notion here that if you're depicting Nazis on screen, you've got to be a bit more grown up about it. And I really like that about his direction here. Yeah, well, Brad Pitt said that about working on Inglorious Bastards. Quentin Set places him as God, and there are no heretics. I mean, QT is the boss, top to bottom, and that shows loud and clear oh, yeah. on his films, yeah. as they always have a very strong vision. And this one's no different. Classic QT, unique vision, and classic QT, like stunning visuals. I know that Tarantino has always said his favourite filmmaker is Sergio Leone, the mm-hmm. legendary Italian director, did the Dollars Trilogy, yeah. classic westerns. And I think Leone's impact on Tarantino might be most obvious, not in his own westerns like Django and The Hateful Eight, but here mm. in Inglorious Bastards, where there's yeah. a very mm-hmm. clear spaghetti western influence. I mean, we have Ennio Morricone, Leone's old collaborator, providing lots of the music. We'll talk about the maestro more later. Yeah. The tonal shifts from dramatic to comical that we see here. Leone often does the same thing, like in The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. Also taken straight from The Good, The Bad and The Ugly are the titled freeze frame intros we get to the three main characters. Here, Stiglitz, Shoshana and Joseph Goebbels all get them. Yeah. And I don't know if you've noticed, but at the start of the film, we get a time-specific universal ident, but it's not the universal logo from the 1940s when the film's set. It's from the 1960s. 
when Leone was at the peak of his powers. I've got that in my notes as well. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. I would say I have some issues around the tonal shifts I mentioned. I don't think Tarantino handles them as well here as Leone does. Mainly it comes mm. in the third act when the bastards are pretending to be Italian to Lander, yeah. where Donnie's like, Margarete. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that scene is hilarious standalone as like an yeah. SNL sketch, but here yeah, it yeah. kills the tension of the whole plot. Massively. And, mm, yeah, and the yeah. film doesn't recover from it, for me. Mm. I'll talk about that more later when I rewrite the ending. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Tarantino does. Rewrite <laughs> <Yeah>. history. <laughs> but compare the feel of that scene to the opening on the farm. It's like two different films. So yeah. not perfect Tarantino direction for me, but still... QT on an 8 is more interesting than the vast majority of filmmakers on a 10. So there's a lot to like still. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I think the good, the bad, and the ugly influence is, is really, really apparent. And that's where he's getting these references from now. It's He's moving away from the smaller stories. He's going bigger in scope, bigger in scale. It seems to have more depth to the image. Do you know what I mean? There seems to be more happening yeah. in the background. He yeah. seems to care about the frame. And I think even with Robert Richardson on board, who we'll talk about later on as well, I mean, he was big in Kill Bill 1 and 2, but it seems like he's listening to him more here. He's like, so what do I do then to make this more cinematic? Because I've lost all of my pop culture references and now I'm going (laughs) big cinema references. And that's kind of how it feels. The camera feels a lot less erratic. The camera feels like it's moving on purpose and it's heavier. But what I get from his direction here is it feels more measured, it feels heavier, it feels like it's more serious, it's more mature, up until those moments that we'll talk about where he loses grasp on it completely and just runs away a little bit. It's, it seems to me like Robert Richardson and a few other people weren't necessarily there that day, and he's like, let's do this. <laughs> you can play with all the toys that they've left behind, and then they come back and go, what have you been fucking around with that for? Put the, ca- put the camera back where it was and do that. But it's just them types of things where it just feels like he's listening to people more here Mm. even though he's got a massive stamp on it but i do feel like from a cinematic point of view from a visual point of view especially he's definitely listening to collaborators yeah well tarantino actually first started working on inglorious bastards in 1998 with the plan being it would be his next film after jackie brown yeah the script kept getting bigger and bigger though so he took a break from it to make the two kill bill films and death proof in 2007 and then he went back Mm -hmm. to the bastards Imagine the ramblings there must have been in that first script. 500 pages long, I bet. <laughs> I think it's probably better than what he came up with 10 years later, to be honest. With you. Yeah, and as you might expect, there are a few Tarantino-style cameos in the film. So we hear two of his frequent collaborators. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson is the voice narrating a couple of scenes. Yeah. And the OSS officer who Landon negotiates with by radio at the end. That's Harvey Keitel. Winston Wolf in it. It sounds exactly like Mr. Wolf. Yeah, yeah, same orders. (laughs) It's not sucking into the sticks just yet. Make the fucking deal. (laughs) (laughs) Also, when Shoshana Cinema explodes, there's a shot of a German soldier jumping from a window, screaming. Yeah. And that scream Mm -hmm. is Kurt Russell's final scream from Death Proof. Death Proof, yeah. Oh, is it? Right. Totally worth making Death Proof just for that moment. Just for that, yeah. (laughs) And there's also a Tarantino cameo. In the bear Jew scene we talked about, uh, we see the bastard scalping a bunch of dead Nazis, and one of them is played by the big QT himself. Yeah, it's the first one, isn't it? It's the first mm-hmm. one, yeah. yeah. Once you know it's him, you, it's so obvious. Yeah. yeah you You're too busy looking at the head coming off. You are, yeah, you are. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Face. Totally, totally. <laughs> it looks great, yeah. yeah. He shows up in the film within yeah. a film too, Nation's Pride. We hear QT shout, yes. I yeah. implore you, we must blow up that tower. His delivery is actually yeah. pretty good. Yeah, but it's a southern accent. Why don't you just keep his accent? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Why has he got to be Australian and Django? What's the matter with him? Yeah. I think he thinks far too highly of his own acting abilities. I think he, he does. does. He really does. 
One of the camera assistants on the film was called Gregor Tavener, and he said Tarantino creates a very specific environment on the set where the crew is trained to be very respectful. Mobiles are banned from the set and everyone has to hand them into security guard at the door as they go in. Even Harvey Weinstein, when he visited, give us your phone. All ah, right, have a look at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hand that over to the cops. Yeah. Especially Harvey Weinstein. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another Tarantino tradition where every 100 cans of film they go through are celebrated with glasses of champagne all around, even if it's like 10am right. or something. Wow. Right. Tarantino after a few glasses banging on about oh. Sergio Cabucci films <laughs> imagine that imagine that on a Fincher film you'd be fucked <laughs> Inglorious Bastards was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars and Tarantino nominated for Best Director do you uh-huh. remember who he lost out to both for the same film um, was this the year of The Hurt Locker Catherine Bigelow it was Best Picture was The Hurt right. Locker and Best Director Catherine yep. Bigelow made her the first woman to win Best Director at the Oscars that's right yeah as for Tarantino, though, venturing into new territory with the war genre and a film revolving around suspense, but you know how to get to Carnegie Hall, don't you? Practice. The cast. As is often the way in a Quentin Tarantino movie, there was a big cast, many of who were established movie stars. We can't go all in on each cast member, so we've picked out the three leads to talk about. Yeah. Melanie Laurent as the tragic Shoshana Dreyfus and Christoph Waltz as the villainous Hans Landau are two of them, but we're beginning with the biggest movie star in the film. Mm. Mm. So Brad Pitt is Lieutenant Aldo the Apache Rain. The leader of the bastards, we see Aldo assemble his team through leading the mission to blow up the cinema to ultimately helping negotiate a deal with Landa that ends the war. Yeah. yeah. He wants his hundred scalps, Westy. He does. How is Brad Pitt as Aldo Rain? <laughs> American Jewish American soul he's great isn't he? <laughs> he's having such a great time that intro when he's just he just walks on and he just fills the screen and he's mm. just got this presence and he's having a fucking whale of a time yeah. he's having such a good time and you just tell he knows he's in good hands you know for a fact that he's got trust in the director he's just got he's got this room to do what he wants with the character he's got room to be a little bit playful a little bit silly but I think his line delivery is excellent and the way he just plays these German racial stereotypes and they just flow into his dialogue you know like your wiener schnitzel finger and like you know when he's told Willie that the boy's going to play a catch with his daddy again and he's got all these like you want to eat a sauerkraut sandwich again just these little bits you know and the, the, even like when he's talking about the mountain climbing accident yeah you like to do that don't you <laughs> but he's just really charming with it and he's just really endearing with it and I love the way that like He's, he's kind of taking the piss out of the role, and it, but the role still has this seriousness to it. They have, have that scar around his neck, which he, mm. did he survive a lynching? Nothing else is said about it. I think yeah, Tarantino yeah. loves putting that in there. Yeah. I think he said if three people have th- their own reasons of why they're looking at why he's got that scar on his neck, they watch three different films. Yeah. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting way to look at a film. Same with the gold briefcase, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, in Pulp yeah, Fiction. So yeah. what you make up whatever's in there, and you just take that with you. And I think mm. Tarantino's an expert at that, and I think Pitt is an expert at tapping into that and then really utilising it. And one of the great things about how much fun he's having is when they talk about that tavern, whole tavern sequence, and Pitt's just talking about fighting in a basement, and that is just talking about <laughs> yeah. Fight Club, and Tarantino <laughs> knows that. And he just riffs on it and keeps riffing on it and keeps riffing on it. Yeah, for me, it's just, it's just really enjoyable to watch somebody of this talent having so much fun. Yeah, I like Aldo, especially as an idea, 
descendant of legendary mountain man Jim Bridger, so he scalps Nazis. That's really good. Got some engine in me. <laughs> <laughs> I like his monologue when we first meet the bastards, where he's like, the German will be sickened by us. The German will fear us. <laughs> and it's obviously funny when Lander keeps making him say his name in that Italian scene, and he's like, Golami. Doesn't even yeah. try an accent. <laughs> it's amazing. <Yeah. laughs> However, I mentioned before how I think the film is undermined sometimes by the handling of the humour. That revolves almost entirely around the bastards, and a lot of it around Aldo. I think it's mostly in the writing rather than with Brad Pitt, whose performance I do think is good. Uh-huh. That said, his accent is a bit too much, and a bit cartoonish at times for me. Tell you who he yeah. reminds me of when he talks sometimes. Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> I see, I see, I see, boy. I mean, I love Foghorn Leghorn, but not in the World War yeah, II film exploring Jewish trauma. Doesn't fit. No. I don't think he ever survived the lynching, did he? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, yeah, I do like, and this goes for the bastards in general, I do like Aldo as an idea. I like the bastards mm. as an idea, but they're a bit over the top for me. Yeah. I think Tarantino has executed what he's going for, so it's not badly done. I just don't think yeah. it's that well judged. I would say the worst thing about Inglorious Bastards probably is the Inglorious Bastards. And Aldo could have been mm. great, but I think is part of the problem as well. Maybe he's having too much fun. I think I'm I'm very much the same as you, John. It's a very broad performance and it's really fun, but he does read as a character like he's kind of stepped out of a comic book. Yeah. And I think the film in general, it tends to go between the more mature direction Tarantino wants to go and stuff with Shoshana and Lander. And then the big cartoonish feel like you get from the bastards, mm. and I feel the performances get pulled in those directions as well. I mean, absolutely, Pitt is having a ball, and he, he, he's never boring to watch, and it's really fun, but it just clashes with the more serious elements and the more serious performances for me. So it's a good performance, but like a, a, a top 10 Brad Pitt performance, I, I don't think I'd have this one in there. Right. Well, Tarantino always wanted Brad Pitt as Aldo, but apparently when he first conceived of the film, he thought about casting Sly Sloan as Aldo, Bruce Willis as Donnie, and Arnold as Stiglitz. <laughs> Expendables. <laughs> the expendable bastards, <laughs> <Yeah>. basically. <laughs> Tarantino said he was writing the script and he started thinking, Brad Pitt would be a good fit for this. Then, actually, he'd be fucking awesome at this. Then, I can't make this film without Brad Pitt. <laughs> Tarantino flew to Pitt's Chateau in the south of France and over five bottles of Pitt's Marival wine Pitt agreed to do the film yeah Brad Pitt lived there with Angelina Jolie at the time yeah right proper Hollywood couple that isn't it yeah massive <laughs> what wouldn't you agree to do after five bottles of Pitt's Marival wine, wine? <laughs> exactly Tarantino loves getting actors pissed and agreeing to do his films <laughs> every film has one of these stories and he doesn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> no, he doesn't, exactly. He just, I think Tarantino likes getting pissed. And people just going, I think after the first bottle, they went, oh, yeah, we'll do this. He's going, I'm just going to stick around. Stick yeah. around. That's what you got the bad and the ugly. <laughs> and the name Aldo Rain, that came from Aldo Ray, who was a Hollywood actor going back to the 1950s. Right. And he had served in World War Two, actually, at the Battle of Okinawa. And he was married to Joanna Ray, the US casting director on Inglorious Bastards. All oh, right. Yeah, wow. yeah, another little Tarantino-verse thing going on there. Wow, Circle of life. And the name Hugo Stiglitz mm-hmm. is a homage to a Mexican B-movie actor called Hugo Stiglitz. Stiglitz, yeah. Da-da. Yeah, great. I was going to call him a little-known Mexican <laughs> actor, but no one's little-known the Tarantino. If you're in a film, no, no, you know who not. you are. No, yeah. yeah. No major award recognition for Brad Pitt for Inglorious Bastards. That came 10 years later in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But here as mm-hmm. Aldo Rain, a good performance yeah good loads of fun yeah it's, it's really enjoyable but whether yeah. that's the point or not i'm not too sure 
Yeah. The second main protagonist in Inglorious Bastards is Shoshana Dreyfus slash Emmanuel Mimieux, played by Melanie Laurent. First appearing as an 18-year-old Jewish girl who witnesses Landa's men murdering her family, we follow Shoshana as she is stalked by Frederick Zola and plots to, and succeeds in, killing a bunch of Nazis before being shot by Zola in the climax. Mm. She's going to burn down the cinema on Nazi night, Matt. Mm-hmm. Melanie Laurent as Shoshana, what do you think? A hot French woman who runs her own cinema. I think Tarantino just wrote his perfect girlfriend <laughs> in the film, didn't he? And all of ours, I think. And ours, And yeah. all of ours, let's be honest. I, I can't rise above it, of course she is. I, I really like her. And what stands out to me is how different she is to the normal female Tarantino character. Because you've got Jackie Brown, who's super cool. You've got the bride, who's awesome with the sword and takes everyone down just through, like, sheer force of will. But... Shoshana is different. She doesn't have a plan. She's more than happy to take on this other identity and just try to get on with her life and forget everything that happened, you know, years previously until fate brings Landa back into her life. And I think there is just this sense that she's carrying that burden on her shoulders of what happened to her. She's gone through trauma and she's she probably has survivor's guilt, which I think is why she's so happy to put herself in the position at the end where she'll probably die carrying out this revenge because yeah. what else has she got to live for? But yeah. that's fine for her. But that revenge, it's interesting that it's not just about grabbing a machine gun and taking them all down from the upstairs Satan. It's about terrifying all the Germans before they die, making this really audacious statement to them, putting them through as much torture as she can. And she's got to really plan and think about that and sit on that plan and not just rampage through them all like the bride would. So, yeah, great performance, but I really love the character. I do, I think she's great. I mean, something I definitely enjoy throughout the film is the talent of the actors, mainly Melanie Laurent, Daniel Bruhl and Christoph Waltz, to switch between languages, often mid-scene, and still be excellent. Yeah. Yeah. I saw an interview with Melanie Laurent where she said, when I read the script, at the end, it wasn't like, oh, I'd like to do that. It was like, oh, I'm sure Shanna. And I think she is. I can't really imagine anyone else playing her. I think she manages yeah. to convey Shoshana as somebody with a lot of depth and a lot of psychological mm. scars without actually seeing very much. Yeah. The only issue I have, and this obviously is not Melanie Laurent's fault, is how Shoshana's used. I don't like that she gets killed off. I mean, mm. has she not been through enough? To me, she should have been yeah. the main character, and she should have had the biggest arc, which is what I've done in my rewrite. And <laughs> <laughs> Massive pitch for his rewrite here, like. Yeah. <laughs> and Melanie Laurent's father, Pierre Laurent, does the voice of Ned Flanders in the French version of The Simpsons. I was going to say, wow. I thought you were going to say The Simpsons. I was like, fucking hell, the actual <laughs> Ned Flanders. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she says a lot more, like you said, John, I think she says a lot more through expression mm. than she does mm. with the actual dialogue. She does have this pained, real kind of past that's just hiding behind her eyes. She's got this real violent streak that's just there. She doesn't suffer any shit. And when I'm watching this, she seems like the only actress, and I'm not going to say character, I'm going to say actress, who just is not bowing down to Quentin Tarantino, who is not in awe of being in a Quentin Tarantino film. Yeah, She's just very happy to be there, but she's just she's not in awe of that. Whereas Pitt's like flamboyancy with it, Waltz's flamboyancy. Everyone else yeah. seems to be like, right, okay, I'm watching what I'm doing. She does not give a fuck. Mm-hmm. And that's just her character. And like you said, when she read the script, like, I can do this. 
And I think that's what Quentin Tarantino wanted. I think he could have went to anyone at the end and just been like, we've hit 100 miles of film or whatever. There's your glass of champagne. And she'd be the only one to say, no, thanks, fuck off. I'm not, I'm not bothered. <laughs> On our phone. <laughs> just being really cool in French. Yeah, just being really cool. Just be like, no, fuck off. Just having a cigarette. But yeah. I, get, I get that from her, that, that she's not enamoured by it and she's not overwhelmed by it. Yeah. And that she's really, really honestly grounds this film because it would have mm, just taken definitely. off like a cardboard glider without her here yeah. it would have just gone off and flown into into areas of like i don't recognize where this is going whatsoever but yeah. she does get a hold of it and she's like a babysitter almost to the last third <laughs> of the film <laughs> so yeah i love her performance i think she's excellent well tarantino had met her three times before casting her the first two were auditions and the third time they went out to dinner and he said to her there's just something i don't like you're famous in your country and i'm wanting to discover somebody Laurent replied, no, 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 I'm not famous. And after that, he offered her the part. Not brilliant. Easily convinced. It's quite... (laughs) (laughs) After five bottles of wine, probably. No, nobody knows me. I could get a part in a Quentin Tarantino film by the sounds of this. I'm not famous either. (laughs) And I know that in preparation for the role, Tarantino gave Laurent a job at the New Beverly Cinema in LA. Tarantino's own cinema. As a projectionist, she worked there for a few weeks and her final assignment was to screen Reservoir Dogs. Nice. Which she did without burning the place down, thankfully. Fair enough. When Tarantino came up with the character of Shosanna, when he wrote the first drafts, he wrote it with somebody who, this is so cool, after seeing a family killed, becomes a sniper and has a list of Nazis that she wants to hunt down. That would be fucking excellent, that. When Tarantino put Inglorious Bastards on hiatus to write Kill Bill, though, he used that idea for the bride instead. Ah, okay. What a shame. I know. Imagine that every film about a scorned woman with a list of people she wants to kill. (laughs) Could have done that. He still could have done that, yeah. He still could have. Yeah, it is a great idea, but I think I do prefer Shoshana as the more grounded version that we get, to be honest. Yeah, Mm. yeah, I guess so. It would have been a goddamn sniper's delight. (laughs) (laughs) And Laurent also said that some of her French lines were written grammatically incorrectly, and she went to... She actually went to Tarantino to tell him this is badly written French and that she could correct it for him, which takes some balls to say that to Tarantino. Yeah, right? that's what I mean. She doesn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, I'll, Do you want us to rewrite this? Because I can do that. But he said, no, it's fine. We can invent new things. <laughs> like language. <laughs> like Tolkien. Just <laughs> 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 speak French. <laughs> Once a time in Nazi-occupied Middle Earth. <laughs> so, Melanie Laurent, for us, excellent to show Shanna, and it's not that easy to yeah. see anybody yeah. else doing it. No, definitely no, not. I can't see anyone, no. That's our two main protagonists, and the film needs two protagonists to compete with the antagonist of the piece in Colonel Hans, yeah, yeah. the Jew Hunter Lander, played by Christoph Waltz. An SS officer tasked with finding Jews hiding in France, Lander is an ever-present evil throughout the film, responsible for the deaths of Shoshana's family, murdering Bridget von Hammersmark, and ultimately making a deal with the Allies to save his own skin. Mm. He's a damn good detective, though, Matt. <laughs> yes, he And is. has the Sherlock Holmes pipe to prove it. <laughs> so how's Landa and Christoph Waltz in the film? It's like a Nazi Columbo, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Just one more thing. <laughs> oh, I think Waltz in this, like, the closest comparison I can make is what it must have been like to see Rickman and Die Hard for the first time and wonder, yeah. who on earth is this guy? He's mm. come from nowhere and he just saunters off with the entire film in his back pocket. It's that yeah. kind of performance. And what's really notable to me is how much he underplays Lander. He's the very image of politeness in that open with Lapidite. He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't rant and rave. Even when he's comparing Jews to rats, it's all very calm and persuasive. 
So when that tone hardens and he accuses Lapidate of hiding the Dreyfus, it's all the more impactful. And he carries that tone throughout the film. Every scene you feel he's having a huge laugh with everyone because he knows more than everyone. Yeah. And he can see through every charade, every lie. But he does it all with this genuine charm. But then underneath it all, you can see how he's playing every situation to his advantage. Like with Lapidate, he says how, like, how proud he is of his nickname as the Jew Hunter. But then at the end with Aldo, he's really dismissive of it. And he says, yeah. no, I'm just a great mm. detective instead. Just playing a game, isn't he? Yeah. He's just playing a game. I mean, he happily gives up the entire Third Reich just to get away. So he doesn't believe in the Nazi ethos. Yeah, exactly. He's found what he's good at. He can see it's coming to an end and he just makes his escape. He, he plays the cards to get out of it. So yeah, a fascinating character. And, and Waltz is just brilliant. Just brilliant. Yeah, I know the QT said Hans Lander is the best character I've ever written. Mm. and I think he's not just a brilliant villain but a really interesting one as well I mean what makes him brilliant yeah. is that he's usually the most intelligent man in the room and always the most prepared mm-hmm. in any situation yeah. every move Lander makes is intentional the way he talks the way he looks at Lapadit's daughters or drinks his milk in one go or smokes that huge mm. pipe all done very deliberately for reasons that's what makes him yeah. so formidable you can't outthink him I mean speaking of Columbo imagine Lander in a room with Columbo trying to outwit each other <laughs> The universe would just implode. Amazing. <laughs> As partners, though. That would be amazing. Oh, unstoppable. Yeah. <laughs> what makes Lander interesting, though, is that I'm not sure he's inherently evil. I mean, he is mm. evil because he does evil things, but I don't yes. think he has an evil nature beyond being a sociopath. I don't think he's necessarily a fascist or buys in the Nazi ideology. He gives it up as no. soon as it suits him, like you say, Matt. Yeah. He's motivated by personal gain and climbing the ladder of success. As he's an Austrian, serving in 1930s Germany, the way to climb the ladder is to be a Nazi officer. But I don't think he wishes harm on Jewish people particularly. We see that at the start. He's caught the family, so has no need to kill Shoshana, so he lets her go Mm -hmm. because he has no desire to kill her. I mean, not that this justifies any of what Lander does at all. People like this still played their part in the Holocaust. But what Lander enjoys is exerting power by outwitting people. He does it with Lapadit. He does it with Bridget. Whether he recognises Shoshana in the restaurant or not, he clearly revels in the control that he has over her in that situation. He's on no one's side but his own, but is capable of making everyone think he's on their side, which is why he's so Mm -hmm. dangerous. And Christoph Waltz, I mean, he's outstanding as Lander. We all know that. Tarantino was apparently so blown away by him that he had Waltz rehearsed just with him, so the other actors didn't know what to expect when they got to the set. Wow, oh, wow. Yeah. In a film full of great performances and big stars, Christoph just waltzes off with the film for me. Nice. Nice. <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah, I mean I'm gonna I'm not gonna disagree, am I? I mean it's it's strange for me the when I first saw this I thought every film he's gonna be in he's gonna be absolutely electric and I don't think that's he's followed through since this one. I mean Django he's incredible in yeah. mm-hmm. this he's incredible in. See it's just his line delivery, his physical presence. But yeah, I mean I don't know if he's inherently evil. Hmm. Because normally, mm-hmm. if you'd see this kind of film, like that's where the hide, and he'd pull out a Luger and just start shooting them. Yeah, that would be the Westy version, would it? No, I don't. I don't <laughs> like milk. I would have had the wine and just forgotten about everything, probably. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just. I mean, that walk that he does when he walks up the Lapetite at the start, that tracking shot. Oh, he's great. got such a physical presence there. It's a brilliant shot, and every time you see him in close up. He's got such contours to his face. He's got such emotion. He's got such excellent change of expressions from evil to just laughing. And, oh, you know, yeah. at this yeah. moment, I, I, I can't remember, you know. But, yeah, I mean, 
like I said at the start, we're talking about Walter. I thought, well, he could, he'd be an incredible. Right? You walk out of that for the first time, and someone stops you with a microphone, go, do you think this guy would be a good Bond villain? Yeah. You go, oh, I think he'd be incredible, but he wasn't yeah. that good. No. No. And he, 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 what's, no. he, what's he going to do next? Do you think he'd be good in the Green Hornet? I think he'd probably save that <laughs> film, but he doesn't. <laughs> Three Musketeers doesn't work. Yeah. Probably the best thing I've seen him in since Django is Horrible Bosses 2, and he's fucking excellent <laughs> in that. <laughs> I think that is just testament to his relationship with Tarantino and how influenced he is by Tarantino and Tarantino is influenced by Walt. And I think what you're looking at here is a relationship, not a singular performance. I think Tarantino is one of the best directors out there at getting performances from his cast. Yeah, unrecognisable yeah, performances that people can't yeah. do again. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty hard to imagine anybody else as Lander now, but do you know who the first person who Tarantino had in mind was? I don't know. I can't think of anyone else who's that charismatic no. and can speak four languages. No. Don't it was Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Although there are also reports that it was Aldo Rain he wanted DiCaprio for, but either way, yeah. QT opted against LDC when he decided he wanted actors fluent in multiple languages. Yeah. I mean, DiCaprio was the bad guy. That could have been great. That would have been great. And Lander speaks four languages in the film, English, French, German and Italian. And because Tarantino wanted an actor fluent in all four, he found the role very difficult to cast. And he later said he was worried that he'd written a part that was unplayable to the point he considered abandoning the whole project. But then Lawrence Bender, the producer, convinced him to try for two more weeks, and that was when they found Christoph Waltz. Yeah, I mean, there's no Waltz, there's no film, is there no. really? No. Well, exactly, yeah. Well, I saw an interview with Lawrence Bender where he said, at seven or eight in the morning, QT called him into his office and said, that's it, we can't find Lander, and I can't do the film. It's over. <laughs> Spit these dummy out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> seven in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and then about two hours later, Waltz walked in and auditioned. And Bender oh, said well, that right. he and Tarantino were like high fiving each other. I mean, play cool, lads. Don't look down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, what are you doing in the office at seven in the morning? Ridiculous. Exactly. <laughs> Just having a paddy at seven o'clock, and then Waltz comes in. They start high fiving each other. Then he's thinking, I've definitely got this. <laughs> a few extra thousand on his uh, salary. Uh, you really want me, do you? Let's see how much you really want me. <laughs> Tarantino said that he got the name of Hans Lander from one of his regular customers at Video Archives, the rental store he worked at before he was famous. <laughs> The real Hans Lander was Austrian, and Tar- he and Tarantino bonded over a mutual love of European films. He passed away, and that was when Tarantino had the idea to name his character after him, which is a lovely oh, story. Right. Yeah, that's a shame. That guy would have loved it, by sounds of it. Yeah, he would have yeah. loved it. Yeah, yeah definitely. Would have and also, apparently, when he was auditioning to play Archie Hickox, Michael Fassbender, who speaks German as his first language, asked about playing Lander. But Tarantino said, look, man... Any guy that gets cast as Heathcliff is not fucking German enough to play Lander. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Right, okay. And he only speaks three languages, Michael Fassbender, which is one less than the required amount. So get out. Yeah. <laughs> Failure. Get <laughs> out. Yeah. Rubbish. Before we finish on Christoph Waltz's Hans Lander, we have our first Patreon question. So, as you may know by now, one of the benefits of signing up to be an ATRM patron on Patreon is that we'll answer your questions on the show. The first one of those is here, it's on Lander, and it comes from Hannah Kuchias, which I think is the correct pronunciation. Apologies if not, Hannah, but hello. Yes, hello, Hannah. So, Hannah has asked, is Walter's portrayal of Lander one of the best villain acting performances of all time, if not the best? Mm -hmm. What do you think, Matt? I think in that question, acting was the key word for me, because I did think Vader straight away, but is that a great acting performance? Or <laughs> definitely just not. Or iconic look and <laughs> yeah. sound? Definitely not. Definitely, I mean, James Earl Jones maybe, not Dave Prowse. Yeah. Um, 
I'll, I'll be surprised if you guys don't mention this one, but I think the flip side of Lander is obviously Ralph Fiennes and Schindler's List. Yeah, that was my number mm. one. Yeah. Obviously very similar in some ways, but very different tonally. Um, another one that came to mind, an actor in this film with a very different character, Michael Fassbender in 12 Years a Slave, where he's absolutely yeah. abhorrent in that. Yeah. So I'd say those two, and what they have in common, and what I find fascinating in the film is what we've kind of talked about, which is, do they know they're being evil and acting that way deliberately, or do they think... No, this is just the way things are. The Holocaust, the slavery, that's just how things are. And that, to me, is a more interesting way of playing a villain. And I think that's where you're getting those performances. But, yeah, Waltz would have to be up there. Yeah, you're right, Matt. I mean, what's interesting about Hannah's question is that she hasn't asked if Landai is the greatest villain, rather is it the greatest mm. acting performance. But, yeah. I mean, from that point of view, you've still got people like Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, Kathy Bates as mm. Annie Wilkes. He's Ledger as yeah. the Joker, Anthony Perkins mm-hmm. as Norman Bates. There's quite a lot of great ones. And as a performance, I would say, yeah, I think Christoph Walters Landa is in that conversation with those names. He's that good. Mm-hmm. Just needs a few more David Prowse fist clenching and finger pointing. <laughs> <laughs> Force jokes. That's how I'll look at the score. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys have mentioned what I was going to mention, to be fair. It's all fairly straightforward when it comes to the villains of the piece because it's very hard to match what's come before. I would say Max Cady from Cape Fear, De Niro, in the oh, remake. Oh, yeah. Mm. will be very similar. For me, a villain, a villain is someone who's just villainous through and through and can't necessarily change. And it just has that in them. It's in their DNA as a nasty, evil person. And even it's, if something changes, it's it's for them. And they, they can't they can't shake that. Whereas I think this performance, it has got villain written all over it. But I think it's more of a cowardly performance and charismatic. I think he's more of a coward than he is a villain and brilliantly played. Well, for his performance as Hans Lander, Christoph Waltz won Best Supporting Actor at the Oscars, yeah. which made him the first actor to win an Oscar for a Quentin Tarantino film. Mm. Wow. Do you know who the second one was? Well, it was him again, wasn't it, for Django? It was Christoph Waltz again for Django mm. Unchained, where he's excellent as a good guy that time. Yes, yes, yeah, brilliant. Yep. And here as Lander, we think Waltz is pretty exceptional. Oh, yeah. It's just incredible. No Lander, no film. Yeah. There's a big ensemble casting in Glorious Bastards, and coming up, we're going to talk about several other supporting cast members, but in our big three, Brad Pitt, Melanie Laurent, and Christoph Waltz, we're fans of all of them. Oh, definitely. Yes. This episode of All the Right Movies is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is, therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Or maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work, not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now, you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customised online therapy that offers video, phone and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And, special offer to all the Right Movies listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash A-T-R-M. That's betterhelp.com slash A-T-R-M. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. The middle. 
Moving into the second act of Inglorious Bastards, it's all about tension and suspense. The famous blowout in the barroom basement is coming, but first, we're staying with Shoshana and Landa for the most awkward dessert ever. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Got to be up there. <laughs> so, with Zola refusing to take no for an answer from Shoshana, red flags all over the place for this guy. <laughs> yeah, this possibly. fucking guy. <laughs> She's invited to dinner with the Nazi Minister of Propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, about hosting the film premiere of Nation's Pride starring Zola. Mm-hmm. Invited's a nice word. Get the fucking car. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When from nowhere, in walks Lander. Yeah. Yep. Wait for the cream, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> How's this all play out? <laughs> Very tensely, I've got to say. I <laughs> love this introduction to Lander because that conversation is just going on with Goebbels and everyone else, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, ah, Lander! And then, yeah. boom, he's there. The music kicks in, and Shoshana's reaction is just one of comp- completely being petrified by this yeah and i think it riffs on the opening scene brilliantly because again you're asking yourself how much does he know does he recognize shoshana here is he playing mm. innocent with her or does he recognize her from years ago and this is just part of his game and it just shows you again like how easily he takes control of every situation he's in under this polite disguise like lapidate asking if he could smoke a pipe in his own home here Shoshana was having her food ordered for her. He doesn't even ask her if she wants cream, but he tells yeah. her she's got to wait for it anyway. But <laughs> it's this kind of conversation as it's going on, and it's when he says, I did have something else I wanted to ask you, and you get that pause. Yeah. And you get that close-up of his face, which gives nothing away. But then he says he forgets it and just puts his cigarette out and the strudel he made such a big deal out of. You get to the <laughs> end of this scene. I'm still not sure if he's recognised or not. I think it's, it's exceptionally well done, this one. Yeah, I like the scene just before this where we meet Major Hellstrom for the first time when he comes to pick Shoshana up at the cinema and he's like, yeah. get your ass in the car. Okay, uh, yeah. Then he's all over the top nice as pie in the restaurant. Horrible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how good Sylvester Groth, who plays Goebbels. Yeah. He played Goebbels before in a film called Mein Führer. I think he's great. Another like he horrible sleaze of a man. Yeah, yeah he's awful. Yeah. And once it's Landa and Shoshana left alone, again, there's some great little touches Tarantino drops in to raise the tension. The music when Landa comes in Bath Attack by Charles Bernstein. Really yeah. percussion driven. Kind of sounds like Shoshana's heart beating out of her chest. Yeah. And then you get those extreme close ups of the ball of cream as the waitress mm. scoops it under the strudel. They're really yeah. weird but great. <laughs> yeah. And the way that Landa orders a glass of milk for Shoshana has us like, does he know that it's her? And there's been debates online for years about whether he does recognise her or not. Personally, I think maybe he does, but because he doesn't buy into the Nazi ideology, like I said, and doesn't see her as a threat, he's not really bothered. He'd rather just toy with her. Either way, Walt is brilliant again. And Shoshana hyperventilating when he leaves the room is great stuff from Melanie Laurent. For me, it's the it's the close-ups in this sequence and the expressions in the, in this sequence, especially from Shoshana when she's just when he orders her the milk and she's her eyebrows just raise, mm. yeah, and she just oh okay yeah fucking now he's playing with us and I definitely think he knows who she is, a hundred percent. Makes a big deal out the strudel, waits for the cream cream again. His dairy from hiding in the dairy farm. There's all these different little things that he's just just the way that he's eating that strudel. For me, the performance here from Waltz when he's just eating it. And mm-hmm. just takes that tiny little crumb <laughs> and just has that little that little bit and waits. And you think, why is he why is he doing this? Why is he taking the piss so much? And there's something else that's been put online as well is that when he puts a cigarette out and it looks like the house, like the Lapetite house that you ran from. 
All right. And watch how he eats it. He turns the plate and he's like, he's fashioning it into something. Yeah. Right. And that close-up speaks volumes. The close-up of the cream's incredible as well. I mean, I don't really like whipped cream, but I do when I'm watching that. I'm like, I really fancy that. (laughs) That looks absolutely brilliant. And there's just these slow push-ins, like when Shasana's lying about what where the cinema and auntie and uncle, there's a slow push-in as she's lying. And then when she's talking about Marcel, who she knows the answers to, it's a static. And it's not a close-up, because she knows the answers. It's genius in that just visual storytelling. But the other giveaway is the smoking. I don't think he smokes. He didn't smoke a pipe, didn't do much with that. And he lights the cigarette, and he blows the lighter out. He doesn't need to blow that out, because it has a clasp on it to, to cancel the flame anyway. All right, right. Like you said, the hyperventilating at the end, the way that just cuts, when it cuts, yeah. is so much more powerful than just lingering on that. It just that, that cuts, to me, one of the best cuts in the film. I think it's an absolutely fantastic sequence. It is pretty brilliant. Well, time for our second Patreon yeah. question now. It ties in with this scene, and it comes from Paul Wilson. Hello, Paul. Hello, Paul. So Paul's asking, where can I get that apple strudel? It does look great, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, if you could order one food item from any Tarantino movie, which one would you choose? He loves a food drop, does Tarantino. So oh, yes, he does. he does. What do you think, Westy? Well... We wrote these down and we don't normally do it, and I'm so pleased we did, because I think we all would have ordered the same shit. So, <laughs> <laughs> so for me, it was a cross between... I wanted, to, I wanted to say that pint from Django, but that's not oh, food, is it? It looks that, amazing, that, that pint. That pint is like one of the best pints oh. I've ever seen, when he just scrapes the <laughs> foam off the top the of it. Oh, and I'm, I mean, I know that might be food to some people, but I cannot sit in that camp. <laughs> so I would have to say the $5 shake, which is almost food from Pulp Fiction, yeah, yeah. with... A packet of red apples, which is some people's food if you smoke, I guess. So I would have the $5 shake. I need to know what that tastes like ever since Travolta's reaction to it. I yeah. need to know how good that is. It's got no <laughs> bourbon or anything in it, so I'll have that. And then I would have a red apple, and I would basically I would drink it halfway down and then just put the red apple out in it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going Pulp Fiction as well. It's got to be Big Kahuna Burger. Yeah, of course it does. I would have gone royal with cheese, but that's just a quarter pounder. You just go with my yeah. <laughs> Lay Big Mac. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that shot of when Jules first picks the burger up is the best looking burger I've ever seen on screen. Yeah, So wrong, it has yeah. to be that. And then I'd steal your menu, Westy. Wash it down with a $5 milkshake from Jackrabbit Slims and then nice. a red apple cigarette to top <laughs> it all off. Nice. Three course Tarantino. And then Zola's going to interrupt you as you're having it. <laughs> I hope not. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm going for the Hateful Eight in the stew they have in Minnie's Haberdashery. Oh, right. Because that film, I mean, it's so cold, that film. Everyone's freezing, and that stew just looks so warm and, like, big and hearty and inviting. I would just yeah. want to get stuck in a ball of that. From being from the north of England, I don't think we've ever had a bad stew. No, no. All big fancy stew. So, yeah, I'd have that, yeah. and then I'd have the pint from Django. Yeah, it is cold, but that stew, Matt, it looks absolutely disgusting in the hateful it. <laughs> I'd rather drink the coffee. <laughs> I don't know, like, I've seen some meals you've consumed in the past, John. <laughs> it didn't look particularly yeah. appetising, but you seem to be fucking enjoying yourself. So, Gables has arrived, Landa is back, and Tarantino, the master of suspense, all of a sudden. Yes, he is. Where's that come from? After the tension of the restaurant scene, we head to the village of Nadine for even more tension. Yeah. The Allies and Bastards Operation Kino is underway, and Lieutenant Archie Hickok, Stiglitz and Wiki head to the La Luzine Tavern to meet their contact, German movie star Bridget von Hammersmark, played by Diane Kruger. Mm. Unfortunately for Bridget and the Bastards, Major Hellstrom's there too. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a special rung in hell reserved for people who waste good scotch. Or aftershock, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> yeah. You're not one of those, Westy. I would be on the aftershock. <laughs> <laughs> so how is La Luzian? I mean, to me, this is where the film is exceptional in the the tension building, the storytelling, the dialogue, the camera placement, the acting, everything is just absolutely exceptional. The way it just builds on itself, introduces more actors, come in more characters, come in that you didn't think were going to be there. When he just comes from the back, mm. and Wilhelm said that you have a strange accent, and Stiglitz has had to come over and take over, and it's just kind of like, why didn't Stiglitz take this over from the start? Why didn't you just have the German speakers from the start? Why has he got to be in the middle with the one with the weird accent? And you just start going, but yeah, it's it's fantastic. It's a fantastic sequence, and absolutely, I mean, there's a split diopter in here, just mm, to show yeah. that Hammersmark is part of this whole sequence, part of the environment. She fits in here. She's the same as everybody else. I mean, the first time I saw this, it just pounds over here. Mm. And when it erupts, it erupts, and it's incredibly violent, and it's incredibly well edited. And we'll get into that with the editing. But for me, this whole sequence is 23 minutes of pure tension. I just think, why? Because they've, they've already got a place. He's dropped into France. The bastards have got him. She's just in the tavern. Why don't you just finish her drink and just walk to where they are? <laughs> to me, is is from a narrative point of view, there's no reason for this scene to necessarily happen. It's a brilliant scene, mm-hmm. and I'm so pleased it does happen. But I think this is just where Tarantino's written it a little bit too quickly, and he can't, can't really join the dots. So that lets it down for me as a whole film. But if you break it down into sequences, this is one of the the best sequences I've, I've ever seen. Just directed and acted from t- for 23 minutes of pure attention of just like, watch this, it's incredible. But it feels like it's just plonked in. Not taking anything away from the scene. The build of tension, like he said when he's been interviewed, is like a rubber band just being pulled and pulled and pulled and pulled until Mm. it can't be pulled anymore. And then it just snaps. And when it snaps, you fucking know it does. It's just, it's brilliantly done. But for me, I just really, really wish this had a start and an end where it hooked it all together. Yeah, I think it's an even bigger masterclass in suspense than the last scene we just talked about. It is. It's it's Mm. unreal. As soon as Hellstrom reveals himself, where he's like, may I inquire? Turning off the turntable. <laughs> that's a great touch. Yeah. The tension goes yeah. through the roof and it just doesn't stop. I mean, Tarantino knows that he needs something. Like, how does Hickok give himself away? And he knows it has to be good and satisfying and memorable. And it is. I think most people would know what you were talking about if you referenced holding up three fingers in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed as well, when Hickox holds up his three fingers, Bridget's in shot and there's a really small reaction from her where she just gives a look like, shit. Ah, and there's right. like a minute after that of nothing, no dialogue, and her just looking over at him, just being like, oh yeah, yeah, he's fucked it. Yeah, I know yeah. he has, yeah. Yeah, it's where he's bringing the drinks over, isn't it? There's no dialogue at all for over a minute. Yeah. And mm. speaking of Bridget, I've never seen Diane Kruger as good as she is here. I think she's outstanding. She's excellent. And the dynamic and chemistry between August Dealer's Hellstrom and Fassbender as Hickox. Mm-hmm. Paris Wayne sizzles that. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. And the end of the scene with Aldo and Wilhelm's Mexican standoff is great too. I remember being shocked first time round when Wilhelm gets shot and we cut to see that it's Bridget holding the gun. Mm-hmm. So yeah. one of the greatest suspenseful scenes I've ever seen, to be honest. Although I can't believe they didn't kill Wilhelm with a Wilhelm scream. What's the point in anything? <laughs> and Matt, yeah. you up for an aftershock or two? Uh, I think I'll stick with the champagne, actually. <laughs> Classy guy. I mean, the film in general, I think it's full of great character either entrances or revelations and the one with Hellstrom is brilliant the way it just cuts to him sitting there and he's yeah, been listening brilliant. all along and he can identify the different accents 
So from this point on, you're just waiting for someone somehow to give the game away. Is it going to be the drunken German, Wilhelm? Is it going to be the French daughter? Is it going to be something to do with this card game that they're playing? Everything is like this slow dance of just waiting for the tension to break and the scene to explode. And it's something, again, I think it kind of riffs on the opening scene. There's all this polite language. There's all this forced laughter disguise from what's really going on. You know, oh, someone has to carry a lighter and everyone bursts into like laughter at that. Yeah. You know, the captain is immune to my charms. It's this wonderful back and forth waiting for someone to snap. And when you get that expression on Hellstrom's face, you know he's clocked them as not being German. But yeah. you don't know how, and you're yeah. dying to find out. You cannot wait because you're thinking, "Well, what's he done? He, what's he done there? He's just held his fingers up. No one knows unless you yeah. really know German." Yeah. And then after this scene, what's interesting is you cut to the vet where you see Bridget's gunshot wound being treated, and in the script, Aldo and his men forced the vet to help by Donny shooting two of his dogs, and that moment was removed, but you can still see the two dead dogs in the background. Yeah, and Rain does say, "Tell me, go and play with these dogs." And yeah, he throws them towards the dead ones, which is yeah. really harrowing. Harsh. That is awful. Yeah, it's awful. The part of Archie Hickox was originally written for Tim Roth, which makes perfect sense, but he had to pull out due to scheduling conflicts with his TV show, Lie to Me. All oh, right, yeah. Tarantino then offered the part to Simon Pegg, but he had scheduling conflicts with The Adventures of Tintin. Tarantino then went through auditions, and that's how he found Michael Fassbender. Yeah, Fassbender's only in the film for about half an hour, but every scene he's in is like electric. Yeah, he's memorable. Reading the script, he must have been like, I'm only in three scenes, but yeah. God, this dialogue. Yeah. yeah. When Hickox is like resigned to his fate, and he's mm. like, if this is it, old boy, I hope you don't mind if I go out speaking in the Kings. Yeah. yeah. What a line that is. It's unbelievable. And then he drinks Hellstrom Scotch, and he's like, I must say, damn good stuff, sir. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Fantastic dialogue. Fantastic delivery yeah, by yeah. Fassbender. I feel that as him knowing his final moments in the film every time. It's my mm. favourite part of the film. Oh, wow. Yeah, And at one point, Hickox tells Hellstrom that he and his family are from a village at the foot of the Pittspaloo, and they were in the Riefenstahl film, which he mentions, and this was a real film, and it was called The White Hell of Pittspaloo, and it starred Lenny Riefenstahl, and it was directed by G.W. Pabst, and his name is on Bridget's hat in the game that they play. He mentions it as well, doesn't he, earlier on? G.W. Yeah. Pabst. Yeah, he does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we see a poster for that film. It shows Charlotte Cinema too in one of those yeah. great crane shots I talked about. Yeah. It's one of those like classic illustrated posters from the 30s. I love those. Yeah. I briefly considered buying it. Then I realised it might give people the wrong idea, having that hanging on my wall. <laughs> so <laughs> I went for 2001 instead. They'd, they'd have to know, really. <laughs> Not let you get nation's pride. <laughs> no. <laughs> and just before the bar shootout, we'll see the scene where Hickox is briefed by Winston Churchill, played by Rod Taylor, and General Ed Fennick, played by Mike Myers. Yeah. Bit of a surprise to see Myers show up, isn't it? It is a surprise, but I think he's, he's all right in it. Not that bad. He's just, he's, it seems like a kind of a knockoff of Austin Powers, doesn't it, really? Mm. No junk in it. Got the gist. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> like, really, Austin Powers, that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about the brilliant scenes. I think that's the worst scene in the film. It always takes me out of it seeing my eyes in there with that <laughs> amount of makeup on. You can't think of anything but Austin Powers. Yeah. Really dislike that scene. Yeah, it takes me out of the film a little bit as well, mm. seeing Myers in there just randomly. Yeah. But Ed Fennick is named after Edwidge Fennick, who was a French Jallo scream queen of the 60s and 70s. Right. She's right. a bit easier on the eye than Myers, as you might imagine. <laughs> I would I hope imagine. so. Winston Churchill <laughs> appeared in that scene too, and is played by Rod Taylor. Tarantino wanted Taylor and called him up and Taylor said, what do you want me to do? I'll do anything. 
Tarantino said, I want you to play Churchill. And Taylor said, you realise Albert Finney is available. Tarantino said, if Rod Taylor turns me down, I'll call Albert Finney. And Taylor agreed to come out of retirement for the film. <laughs> and he's great in it, but like... Is he necessary? Because all he does mm. is quiz him on his movie knowledge and then he knows yeah. a little bit more and he's like, yeah, brief him. Yeah. <laughs> As if Churchill was a massive movie buff. <laughs> I think Tarantino thinks everyone's a movie buff. Yeah, yeah he does, yeah. That's how you prove your soul, isn't it? It was Rod Taylor's final ever film role before he passed in 2015. Oh, right. yeah. He'd been in yeah, some right. classics like The Time Machine, The Birds, mm-hmm. and a 1968 war film called Dark of the Sun. Right. And that was why Tarantino wanted him. Oh, like right. his delivery where as soon as Hickox mentions Louis B. Mayer, he's like, mm. brief him. Yeah. 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 And we've reached the end of the middle. Lots of dialogue, lots of gunfire, and a King Kong is African-American's allegory. Who else but Tarantino? <laughs> Who yeah. else? The crew. A combination of long-time QT collaborators and industry legends were in front of the cameras on Inglorious Bastards, and that pretty much sums up the crew behind them as well. Yep. We're going to be talking about the various musicians who contributed to the score, as well as Robert Richardson as the director of photography. But before we do, we're back with the big fella. Mm-hmm. We are. As always on his films, Quentin Tarantino didn't just direct Inglorious Bastards, he wrote it too. QT's seventh feature is writer-director, sixth, mm. if you count Kill Bill's volumes one and two as one film. It's officially sixth, though, isn't it? That's what people say. Yeah. yeah, it is, yeah. So what do you think of Quentin's writing then, Matt? I think the writing is probably why I've never been able to enjoy this film as I did the first time at the cinema. Yeah. Because I think it's very episodic, but not in a way that's satisfying, like Pulp Fiction has a satisfying episodic structure to it. Mm -hmm. Because for one thing, you have the fact that the Bastards and Shoshana never meet in the film. And I don't think he's trying to make a clever point or a narrative point about that. I think he's just having so much fun writing about both of them. And he gets to the end, he's like, oh, they didn't meet. Oh, well, that's fine. I'll just get on with it. And also the fact that, this is a real bum note for me, but the fact that Shosana dies and for all she knows, her plan is going to fail and she never gets any kind of revenge on Lander, Mm -hmm. which I feel the film is setting up for her to do, even if she dies in the process. Yeah, she's going to get some kind of revenge, but as far as she knows, she doesn't. I think that's just a real shame for that character to to die yeah. in that way. And then also, I think if you look at the bastards themselves, apart from Aldo, Donnie, and Stiglitz, the design very memorable. And I think if you look at like the, those kind of World War Two men on a mission films that Tarantino will be influenced by, think of like how memorable everyone is in the Dirty Dozen. Like even yeah. a small character like Donald Sutherland or Telly Savalas, and that they're really memorable. Or yeah. The Great Escape, you know, Charles Bronson's really memorable, James Corburn's really memorable. But here, most of them are just kind of just in the background and they don't really seem to have that much about them to be called the bastards, which yeah. I, I think is a shame, really. So, yeah, I think the episodic nature of this script just leaves quite a few flaws in there. By the standards of most other writers, this is great. But by his standards, it's quite a step below of what he normally delivers, I think. Yeah, I think there's some classic Tarantino writing here. Some great characters, like we've talked about. The dialogue mm. is fire, like we've talked about. And one of the other yeah, parts yeah. of the writing that I really love are the recurring themes that QT drops in. Firstly, there's a kind of audio theme that revolves around languages. The film's written in three main languages, English, German, mm. and French. And there's some Italian too, if you can call Golami Italian. <laughs> yeah. Only 30% of the film's in English. And what I like is how languages play a part in the plot. 
in the opening that we talked about, Landa changes from French to English, meaning the drivers just don't realise they've been found. In the barroom scene we just talked about, Hickox's accent almost gives him away to Hellstrom, and then his misuse of a hand signal does give him away. That's all really good. My favourite recurring theme, though, is the way that cinema and film is like the backbone of the narrative. Yeah. Shoshana owns a cinema. Hickox is a film critic. Zola is a German movie star. Bridget is a world-famous movie star. And what makes it not just work, but sing, for me, is the way that cinema is a key part of the plot. So these character details all have meaning. Hickox isn't just a film critic. He's part of the mission because he's a film critic. Shoshana becomes part of the story because she owns a cinema. And then bringing in Goebbels and the Nazi propaganda films is utter genius. In that story, Shoshana's story, the power of film is used to fight the Nazis. They burn down the cinema with the 35mm film, and then Shoshana uses the cinema screen to taunt them as they're dying. I mean, a cinematic theme is such a Tarantino angle to take in a World (laughs) War II film. It's not been done before, as far as I know, and I couldn't love it more. It's Tarantino's greatest movie concept for me, and he's got a few bloody good ones. However, like I say, I don't like how Shoshana's handled as a character, and I've rewritten the ending before we get to the end section because there is some extraordinary writing here but some flaws for me as well does everyone know that John's rewritten the ending by the way <laughs> <laughs> you're giving it some like John you're building it up it better be good it's not that good to be honest no. <laughs> not even that good <laughs> anyway I agree with what you guys are saying I know that it's very meta in its regards to cinema and his love of cinema and the power of cinema and how he believes that cinema actually destroyed the Nazis within their propaganda films and because of that and because of the power of cinema since World War II they have maintained this force against the Nazis you know all the World War II films that followed even up to now even if you're watching Fury or if you're watching Dunkirk this still resonate and the power of cinema still does explain what actually happened but I think what he's doing is he's using something that's based in realistic and you have to take it seriously it's realistic fact of World War Two, mm. and he's staging what his beliefs within that so He's already putting it in a setting where you know what that setting is, so you have a certain frame of mind. In regards to how he writes and what he wants, I think he's just got too many ideas here, and I'd like to see this a lot more streamlined in the writing. Nothing's more clear to me than the opening credits, because when the opening credits start, it's three different colours and five different fonts. <laughs> it is, yeah. And every time the music comes in, it comes in with a different font and a different colour and a different <laughs> idea. And yeah. I think that's what he said about the whole film. It's not going to make sense, and I don't want it to. This is a film for me because I really understand cinema and I can follow this. I, I wouldn't say selfish, and I wouldn't say pretentious either. I would just say he's just excited by all this stuff, and mm-hmm. there's some stuff he's excited by that I'm not, and I think that's yeah. that's the difference. I mean, we've talked a bit about Tarantino being inspired by Spaghetti Westerns, and he did consider calling this Once Upon a Time in Nazi-Occupied France, uh, which was after Once Upon a Time in the West and Once Upon a Time in America, both by Sergio Leone. Yeah. Bit of a mouthful for a title, it isn't is it? A bit. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. It's great as a title for chapter one, though. Tarantino tells us mm-hmm. straight away they were basically watching a fairy tale. And the name of the film came from The Inglorious Bastards, a 1978 war film directed by Enzo Castellari. And Tarantino spelled it differently, not for copyright reasons, but to make it match with how Aldo Rain would say it. Yeah, the tagline of the Inglorious Bastards was, whatever the dirty dozen did, these guys did it dirtier. And (laughs) (laughs) Enzo Castellari returned the favour in 2010 when he released a film called Caribbean Bastards, spelled bastards. (laughs) 
And that's about drug trafficking pirates who dress like the droogs from a clockwork orange. <laughs> Which sounds amazing. Sounds amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sound great. Yeah. And the title we see at the start of the film doesn't use the designed logo, it's a scan of Tarantino's own handwriting. Yeah. Yeah, it was taken from the cover of the first draft of the screenplay. Yeah. And it's been made yellow, so you must like it, Westy. Yeah, well, there you go. I didn't want to mention that because I thought it would sound like a broken record. But yeah, <laughs> there you are. Yellow credits, automatically brilliant. <laughs> Tarantino said that he had the opposite of writer's block when he was writing the film. Ideas just kept coming, and he had like 12 <laughs> hours worth of material. He said that he actually considered making a TV miniseries instead of a film. You can yeah. tell that, I think. You can tell that. Yeah, he mentioned the idea to Luc Besson, the French director, and he mm-hmm. said... Quentin, you're one of the few people that makes me want to leave the house to see a movie. And Tarantino said that was one of those things that you can't unhear. And it was a factor in him yeah. rewriting it as a film. Yeah, right, fair enough. Yeah, nine and a half hours he cut out. I'd love to see that. Oh, yeah. I'd love to see a miniseries. It would yeah. make so much more sense. Would, Why don't yeah. you tell Luke Besson to sit in the car with his fucking phone? <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how long the bar scene would be in that 12-hour version. Yeah. <laughs> it be a whole episode, I think. Yeah, yeah. The film is fictional, but Tarantino did take some inspiration for the plot from a real-life World War II mission by the Office of Strategic Services called Operation Greenup. Three OSS agents called Frederick Mayer, Hans Winsberg and Franz Weber, who are Jewish, former Nazis, parachuted into Austria, and over several months they gathered intel on the Germans' Alpine fortress by posing as Nazi officers. Mayer was captured and tortured by the Gestapo, but refused to give the other two. Rather than kill him, though, General Franz Hofer used Mayer to make a deal with the OSS where he would surrender the Nazi forces in Austria. Similar to how Lander makes a deal with the OSS at the end of this film. Yeah, there was a documentary made in 2012 about those OSS agents called The Real Inglorious Bastards. Franz yeah, Weber died, but Frederick Mayer and Hans Winberg were still alive, and you see them talk to each other on like a Zoom call, having not seen each other for decades, and Hans died the day after that call. Oh, it's, really? Oh, wow. Yeah, it's genuinely quite moving. Wow. Three brave men. Yeah. So, as well as cinema being a key theme and part of the plot, there are also, as you expect, many references to movies throughout the film. Hmm. So, when Goebbels and his entourage are leaving the cinema after Shoshana holds the screening for him, Francesca, who's played by Julie Dreyfus, she mentions Lillian Harvey, who was a UFA actress in the 1930s. Yeah, Goebbels shouts not to mention her name in his presence because mm. when Lillian Harvey's choreographer had been arrested by the Nazis for being gay, she posted bail for him and helped him escape Germany and then oh, she wow. had to flee Germany in 1939. So that's her wow. story, yeah. Oh, okay. Wow. Right. And then in Shoshana's cinema on the night of the nation's Pride premiere, we see Goebbels introduce Zoller to Emil Jannings and he had starred in several silent classics like Faust, which was directed by F.W. Murnau and The Blue Angel Way, co-starred with Marlene Dietrich. Yeah, he was a huge star. He was the winner mm-hmm. of the first ever Best Actor Oscar, too, Emil Jennings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also at the premiere, Enzo Castellari, director of The Inglorious Bastards and Caribbean Bastards. We can yeah. see him in the background, standing behind the bastards. Oh, really? yeah. He's behind Aldo, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. The, bold, the bold fella. Yeah. Ah, right. Okay. Well, also at the premiere, Donnie says he's called Antonio Margheriti, who is the director of cult classics like Cannibal Apocalypse. And obviously, Tarantino's a huge fan. Yeah, say it properly, Matt. Margarita. <laughs> Margarita. That'll do. Of course, Tarantino's a fan. <laughs> and also, Aldo Rain's pseudonym is Enzo Golami. That's not an accident. Enzo Golami is the real name of Enzo Castellari. Oh, God. <laughs> it's getting confusing. <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> and then one more reference. When Marcel sees Shoshana in the red dress, he says, Ooh la la, Daniel Dario. 
Well, Daniel Dario was a huge French movie song and singer going back to the 1930s. Yeah. Yeah, she died at the grand old age of 100, Danielle Darrier. And she right. had a career that was eight decades long. Jesus. Wow. I'm complaining <laughs> yeah. about that. Think we'll still be doing this in eight decades' time? We'll run out of classics by that long. <laughs> yeah. Depends how many people make more great films, really. Yeah. <laughs> Tarantino often links his films together by family names, and that's no different here. Donnie Donowitz is the father of Lee Donowitz, the producer of Coming Home in a Body Bag in True Romance. <laughs> Aldo Rain is the grandfather of Floyd, the pothead in True Romance, also played by Brad Pitt, which is fucking great. <laughs> and Archie Hickox is the great-great-grandson of Pete Hickox, played by Tim Roth in The Hateful Eight. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, so I guess that explains why you want the Tim Roth as Hickox, first of all. Right. Yeah. I yeah. mean... You'd be gutted if you were in a Tarantino film and he came out a few years later and said, oh yeah, that guy, he's the twin of the gimp. Him. <laughs> <laughs> he was the gimp. <laughs> what? For his screenplay for Inglorious Bastards, Quentin Tarantino was nominated for Best Screenplay at the Oscars, lost out to Mark Ball for The Hurt Locker. QT, mm. though, as ever, some exceptional stuff in the Inglorious yeah. Bastards screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. He's never written a boring script, put it that way. No. From the writing to the music, and Inglorious Bastards is notable in that the soundtrack is a mix of pre-existing music, yeah. largely obscure pieces of spaghetti westerns, and garage-infused rock, together at last. <laughs> Definitely. So, quite the eclectic <laughs> mix, Westy. Yeah. How do you like the music? I think the music here is done just to completely blend into the film and support the visuals. I don't mm. think this is QT going, I'm going to stick this on a vinyl for people to buy and listen to yeah. it in its entirety yeah. from start to finish. I don't think it has a flow like, let's say, Pulp Fiction, even Kill Bill 1 or Kill Bill 2 or mm. Reservoir Dogs. It's not made for that. I think it's made as a cinematic piece, taking really huge cinematic swells and putting them underneath the visuals that he's trying to really address the importance of cinema and the importance of music and how that heightens emotion. There's, a, there's something from Zulu Dawn in here. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. it's just got that, that gravitas to it where it's just so, so big and it's so evocative when it's placed in the right context of the film. To be fair, a lot of it's right on the nose but I think he wants it to be and I think it's a soundtrack designed to be watched if that makes sense not listened to yeah yeah I think Tarantino is a master at selecting soundtracks for his films and it's no different here yeah. you often go for the musical theme like the surf music in Pulp Fiction and here the spaghetti western stuff I think it works brilliantly it gives the film this slightly off-kilter tone compared to what you normally get in a war film, but never undermines the seriousness of the subject matter yeah. there's lots of Ennio Morricone in there eight lots. tracks from films like Revolver, <laughs> The Return of Ringo, which isn't about the Beatles, sadly. Yeah, get help in there. <laughs> <laughs> the Battle of Algiers, Death Rides a Horse. It's all superb, obviously, but there's two standouts for me. One is called Rabaya e Tarantella, which is from a historical drama called Alonsan Fan. It plays over the end credits. We played it at the start of this episode. I think yeah. it's brilliant. Yeah, And also The Verdict, that's from a western called The Big Gun Down. We hear it at the start when we get that wide shot of Landa's car approaching the farmhouse. What's interesting is that in that piece, Morricone samples Fur Elise by Beethoven. A very famous piece, so we've got Germany's most legendary composer accompanying the Nazis' arrival into the film, which obviously isn't a coincidence on Tarantino's part. No. And there's also music from... Dimitri Tiomkin, Lalo Schifrin, Giorgio Moroda, Charles Bernstein, Elmer Bernstein. I mean, you can't really go wrong, can you? I'm just going to get all the best composers in there. Yeah. <laughs> a great collection of music from Tarantino. And I can imagine him having a great time pulling it together. 
Yeah, I mean, everything you guys have said, but I just want to talk about that one time he drops in a more contemporary song with Boy and Putting mm-hmm. On Fire. Yeah. Because I think that's an incredible choice, and I think it's all the more effective for being the only time he puts in like a pop song from a different time period. With gasoline. Like overload the film with him, he actually shows a bit of restraint, and you know the lyrics that fit the scene, obviously, which is Shoshana putting a plan in operation to burn down the cinema. But it's just that he fits with some of the most striking imagery. I think you get in the entire film, just her in that red dress pulling down the black veil down across yeah. her face really slowly. Yeah. Like, and I think this is a moment to say to you, she knows she's not getting out of this, but she's okay with that as long as the plan comes off. And I think the music just hits that point home really well. Like. There's this whole determination and emotion to the scene that this song carries with it. So it's definitely one of his best uses of a song. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can't go wrong with Bowie either, can you? Morricone, no. Beethoven and Bowie. All right, then. <laughs> Might as well get Maka in there. <laughs> what Maka would you get in there? Mullick and Tyre. <laughs> Pipes of peace. No, I know you're Temporary secretary. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Putting Out Fire is originally from Cat People, 1982 horror. And the musical supervisor on Inglorious Bastards, Mary Ramos, said, when he first showed me how he was using that song, Quentin grinned like you wouldn't believe. He was so proud of the way it worked. I can easily believe it, to be oh, honest. I can believe it. <laughs> Please with himself, Tarantino, or never. High five and Lawrence Bender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Unoriginal music for Inglorious Bastards, so it was never considered for any awards, of course, but one of QT's most memorable soundtracks? Yeah, one yeah. I'd never listened to by itself, but when, with the yeah. film, it's, it's immaculate. We've waxed lyrical about the visuals throughout this episode, and now we're going to go into more detail as we talk Robert Richardson as the Director of Photography. Yeah. Prior to this, Richardson had been DP on Platoon, Wall Street, Born on the 4th of July, and JFK for Oliver Stone, A mm. Few Good Men for Rob Reiner, and Casino and Bringing Out the Dead for Martin Scorsese. Yeah. And he'd shot both volumes of Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. Yes. This guy knows what he's doing then, Matt. Yes, he does. Just think everything feels so cinematic with this. You know, certainly if you look at Tarantino's first two films, so much of those just take place in rooms of one kind mm. of another, the quite small scale. And that's what he wants. But he he wants it to be big. He wants it to be opened up. And I think Richardson has a lot to do with that. I think there's some incredible imagery in here. I'll talk about it a bit more at the end. But when the cinema's burning down and you have Shoshana's face projected through the flames and through the smoke, that's just astonishing. Yeah. And I think there's some really clever camera movement from Richardson that opening with La Padite. When that camera moves, it moves because it's showing you who has the power in that situation and who's controlling the conversations that pan from La Padite to Lander that puts you on edge because the cameras are moved like that so far in the film. Mm-hmm. So you know it's moving for a purpose and you know because of the scene, it's not a good purpose. And then to cut to those big close-ups of Lander and then Lapidite just sweating because he knows he's being caught. Just that's great storytelling just with the camera movement and just with the, with the shot choice. So yeah, it's great work by Richardson. Yeah, I agree. I mean, like we've been saying, Tarantino always has a vision, whether it's the tone or the music. He always knows what he wants to go for and then surround himself with the right people to do that. With the visuals, it seems to me to be very classically shot to the point where it reminds me of like 40s and 50s Hollywood sometimes. Right. And Robert Mm. Richardson, with his background we just mentioned, is pretty perfect to capture like a classic style. There's loads of wide establishing shots, which are reminiscent of John Ford to me. Lots of crane and dolly work like we talked about. If there were any more modern-style steady cam shots at all in the film, then it's not many. 
And I guess that's all done to reflect the time period, how the film might have been shot had it been made in the 40s or 50s. But it still feels modern. Shots like the one in the opening that tracks down Lapadite's leg under the floorboards to the hiding Dreyfuses, yeah. or the kind of bird's eye tracking shot we get in the climax that follows Shoshana around part of the cinema. They're mm-hmm. classic, but still have that Tarantino edge to me. And Robert Richardson, I mean, QT's brought him back for every one of his films since this one, which yeah. says it all. One of his best collaborations, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's that overhead shot that mirrors Shoshana at the end, which is also lander at the start yeah he, he's got the upper hand so mm-hmm. it's a lot of mirrors and a lot of comparisons and a lot of yeah like i've said before and like you guys have said it's very classic and it's light and it's very classic and it's look some of it looks lit a lot of it you wouldn't say oh that's natural light you know a lot mm-hmm. of it looks like they've brought in these big big units from like like they used to shoot it on big stages and it does have that kind of grandeur and that feel to it but the fact that he's worked with them ever since and i think this is the first film where He's just kind of went, look, I've, I've won an Oscar for JFK. Do you want to just listen to what I'm saying and slow yeah. down a little bit, Quentin? <laughs> <laughs> and just went, yeah, okay, let's do that then. What did you do for that film? Well, we did dialogue sequences like this. And he's like, all right, okay, right. And, you know, it, it's all about the framing of this. It's all about the position of it. And like I said, I think this is just a really, really great collaboration. I think Richardson is the only one who could shoot to this scale for Tarantino mm. and deliver to this level and not take you away from the story because that would be so easy to do and a lot of it's very stylistic I mean there's the table light that Richardson uses all the time which is most evident on the on the opening sequence which is just one bare light above the table and he bounce that straight down and light the whole scene with it so the middle of the table is super bright but everyone's lit from that light, so it just bounces around the room. So he does bring that freedom so Tarantino can direct, so people can act. So yeah, like I said, as a collaboration, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, there's a scale here, which isn't really there on his first three films. No, definitely not. There's a depth, like I've said Mm, before, like a a real weight to it. Well, Richardson calls Tarantino a purist, but said that he likes wide-angle lenses and centred framing, which is more contemporary. And he said that he and Tarantino would have little battles about where to put the camera, and Richardson would choose one side or the other, whereas Tarantino likes dead centre framing. Yeah. Yeah, I read an interview with Robert Richardson where he said that Tarantino's love of all techniques and also wide lenses and centre framing are the things that make him unique as a filmmaker. Mm. One of many things, to be fair, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Okay... (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah, and Richardson's camera assistant was Gregor Tavener, and he said that Tarantino gets rid of the video village that you find on most modern movie sets. He said the only video monitor on set is the small one on the camera, and he said that during takes, Tarantino sits next to the camera so you can see that monitor, and if there's a dolly move, he goes along for the ride, and he always checks the framing. Yeah, the more that you hear about Tarantino on set, the more you realise this kind of discourse you often hear about him being a hack or rip-off merchant. It's just total nonsense. Mm. He's a massive talent to me. Absolutely. And Tavner also said that Tarantino likes to shoot with a single camera rather than the modern trend, which is to use two camera setups. And he said that the camera rolls for as many takes as necessary until Tarantino was happy. He said it is a joy and a pleasure. Nice. Mm. Yeah. So in a dialogue scene, whenever there's a cut to a different angle or something, we're often watching a different take. And Richardson said it was a challenge, but in his words, pressure makes diamonds. Which is a great line. Oh, that's a great line. No. Surprised Tarantino wasn't used it before. <laughs> yeah, but that's how Nolan works as well. But that also means that the the actors who aren't in shot still have to give an incredible performance because mm. it's not yeah. being recorded. So they have to work twice as hard. So it's very organic. I think that's his, his whole yeah. process. Yeah, very much. For his work on Inglorious Bastards, Robert Richardson was nominated for Best Cinematography at the Oscars. He lost out to do you know who? Whoever did the Hurt Locker. It wasn't the hurt locker this time. It was okay. Mauro Fiore for Avatar. All oh, right. Well, that right. makes okay. sense. 
there was some of that great people worked on the film too. Sally Menke, Tarantino's longtime editor, was also mm-hmm. Oscar nominated and sadly mm-hmm. passed away in 2010. So this was the last time she worked with QT, having right. been with him since the start, Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, it is sad. And throughout film at the end of each take, the actors would turn to the camera and say, hello, Sally, in this footage from most of those takes, which you can find online, which is a nice tribute, I think. Yeah. Some of her needle drops in the film are superb. Yeah. Slaughter yeah. by Billy Preston in La Luzian. That is outrageous. Yeah. Also, Anna B. Shepard as costume designer and David Wasco as production designer provide fantastic work. So in all those names, Robert Richardson, Sally Menke, Ennio Morricone and the many other composers on the film, some huge talents on Inglorious Bastards. Yep. And you can see the ball, to be fair. They all yeah. shine. The end. The final act of Inglorious Bastards is where Tarantino's fantasy version of history really comes into play, and we're going in on all of it. The destruction of the cinema, death of Hitler, and the movie's denouement are all being discussed, but before we do that, there's some major character exits to talk about. Mm-hmm. They are. All of our characters come together in Shoshana's cinema as the narrative climaxes, but things don't go to plan. Firstly, on uncovering her as a spy, Landa strangles Bridget to death, and then Shoshana meets her fate when she and Zola shoot each other in the projector room. Mm. The lady's making pretty brutal exits, Matt. Mm. What do you make of it all? Well, we've already seen Fassbender introduced and then pretty quickly killed off, so you know no one's safe in this. So that scene when Landa gets to Bridget and takes her in his room, and we know that Landa knows that Bridget was in the cellar, you know it's not going to end well for her. And it's a real shame, because I like the character a lot, and I think Krug is excellent. But what's interesting is that this is the most violent we ever see Lander. He's normally just dispatching other people to do the killing, not doing it himself. But here, he knows that Bridget is a spy, and he's going to kill her. But he doesn't take a gun with him. He kills her in this really horrible physical way. Like, he makes her feel every little bit of pain as he strangles her and it's horrific to watch because mm. up until now he's been this small charming character who you never feel as much of a physical threat so it's a real shock where he just dives out of that chair yeah. and launches himself onto her and it's really tough to watch her being strangled like that yeah. and then obviously this being a Tarantino film you get a shot of her feet in there as well <laughs> of course <laughs> of course you do yeah, the scene where the bastards are talking Italian to Landa comes right before this one, and mm-hmm. I've already talked about how I think it undermines the tone of the film, but not even that can lighten the mood here, because the death no. of Bridget is horrific. Yeah. yeah, I think Diane Kruger is fantastic, like I said, yeah. though with her death, I know there wasn't actually much acting required, because Diane Kruger was choked for real. Do you know about this? Yeah, yeah it was yes. Tarantino, wasn't it? It's on hands, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? <laughs> So apparently Tarantino always thought choking scenes in films looked fake, so he spoke to Kruger and convinced her to be actually strangled, not by Christoph Waltz, though, by Tarantino himself. Itself, yeah, it's yeah. Hand, yeah. Yeah. I saw an interview with QT where he said, what I said to her was, I'm just going to strangle you, all right? Full on, I'm going to cut off your ear for just a little bit of time, we're going to see the reaction in your face, and I'm going to yell cut, okay? And Kruger agreed, and apparently lost consciousness for a few seconds. No way. I mean, that's Good too far, surely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, why well, you just give her a foot massage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, she should have said to QT, did you wear uh, bum ving rings for real in Pulp Fiction to get his reaction? <laughs> no, funny that. You can't strangle me then. 
he might have. He might have been. You know, yeah. He might have been the gimp. Yeah. <laughs> who knows what he would do? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, and Bridget, she was loosely based on Marlene Dietrich, who was the biggest German movie star in the world back then in the thirties. Dietrich was never a spy for the Allies like Bridget is here, but she did work with the OSS and she recorded some songs in German reporting Allied victories and that was done with the intention of demoralising German soldiers and she was awarded the American Medal of Freedom after the war for that. Nice. Yeah, also as the war was coming to an end, Dietrich went back to Germany as she'd heard that her sister Liesel was being held in Bergen-Belsen, the concentration camp. When she got there though, she found Liesel wasn't in the camp. She and her husband were running a cinema which would be visited by Nazi officers. So right. an inspiration for Shoshana, maybe. Right. Surely. Yeah. And then before Diane Kruger was cast, Tarantino had actually approached Natasha Kinski, who'd starred in Paris, Texas, to play Bridget. Mm-hmm. And he met her in Germany, but they couldn't come to a deal to get her in the film, which is when he then turned to Diane Kruger. Nice. Yeah, Diane Kruger's German, but because she was most well-known for films like Troy and National Treasure, Tarantino apparently thought she was American, which put him off casting her. So right. when she auditioned and spoke like perfect German, he was blown mm. away. Right. Great character, great performance for me. Yeah, yeah I love her. Well, this scene taps into what I mentioned earlier, and there's a Westie theory. Oh, lovely. Here so Shazana and Zola kill each other. Now, all the way through the film, we have this character of Zola, and we don't like him. Mm. Not only don't I like him, I don't believe him. I don't believe that he shot all these people. I don't believe right, that he's yeah. a war hero. I believe he's a young, jumped-up actor who Goebbels has put in there in his training to uh, to make him into this superstar and then put him into politics, as he says, over the dinner table. And he's just playing a role. And this is where it becomes evident to me. So he's trying to force his way in there. He's trying to use his, his fame and his acting prowess to mm. just put something in front of him. He's not a believable killer. For a start, this character. He hasn't killed no. 250 Americans. Yeah. Over the course of three days, they would have yeah. blown that bell tower away, which is why yeah. Tarantino says we've got to destroy that tower, and yeah. it's never answered. So that's also undercut in there. Why wouldn't they just roll in with tanks and blow them away? Yeah. doesn't yeah. seem believable to me. The killing actually takes place in the bir- in a bird's nest. It's above the audience. It's in the projection room where mm-hmm. he would have been. So it's metaphorically a bird's nest where that, yeah. where that does happen. He turns his back on her. She shoots him. He turned, and then he's basically just nothing. He doesn't react to that. He's just not strong enough to do that. She walks over because she feels sorry for him. He turns around, shoots her at close range. Now, it's at this point, because the shoots hit the beat of the music, and you turn around and you get this incredible close-up of him, and you think, is this a crime of passion? It looks like it's the first time he's killed anybody. Mm. And that gun is spot. And, and then he, when he goes to shoot her again, we have got one. he's got one shot at close range, and his hand is shaking on that gun. And he's just like, uh, mm. as if he doesn't know what to do. And the last shot is not a, a kill shot. It's just another shot to the chest. It's just stupid. It's just amateur. If he was a sniper and he killed 250 people, he could shoot her and kill her with a headshot yeah. with a Luger at the end. But doesn't. It's just very, very sloppy. It's all over the place. And then he just drops his gun and he just dies. Mm. As if mm. he's got no resolve whatsoever. The resolve to sit in a bell tower with no food or water for three days. Mm. It's absolute shite. So I think that his character <laughs> is... It, the whole backstory of that is just again German propaganda and we have bought into it as an audience as the Germans would have bought into it as the audience would have bought into it mm-hmm. and I think that's what he was trying to say not sure if anyone else has touched on that not sure if that's plausible or not but in my head it kind of works I think that's lovely that I think it works yeah I mean Joseph yeah. Goebbels was the Nazi minister of propaganda so yeah so I think that whole character is a big red heron and it's a big fuck you to us as an audience into buying into how powerful cinema is within the film. 
Yeah, I mean, this part of the story, it's where I start having some problems, to be honest. Not with the filmmaking. I mean, Laurent and Brule are excellent. The use of Unamico by Morricone as they shoot each other, that works great. That slow motion close-up of Marcel's cigarette as he's spinning towards the pile yeah, of film. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of storytelling, I think Tarantino makes some not great choices here. First off, I've mentioned it, killing Shoshana. I find it unsatisfying to end her story the way he does, dying for revenge. And it didn't have to be like that. You'd set it all up, I think, to be fantastic. So this is my ending. Here we go. The arrogance to correct Tarantino. (laughs) (laughs) God, I hope he listens to this. You won't be the first. You won't be the first. Just to be clear, I don't think I'm better than Tarantino. (laughs) I think he's incredible. I'm in awe of the things he can do. I just wish he'd done a couple of things differently here. So this is what I wish he'd done. All right. So going into the climax, we've got two separate plot threads, Shoshana and Marcel's plot to burn down the cinema and the bastard's plot to blow up the cinema. Typically, mm-hmm. in any story, the plot threads come together in the climax. Yeah. Tarantino doesn't do that here, to the point where Shoshana and the Bastards don't even know each other exist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's done it on purpose, obviously, but I think it's a mistake. It could have happened where Zola comes to the projector room, Shoshana tells him to get lost, and Zola goes mad, like we do get. He's on the verge of assaulting Shoshana when, bang, 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 he gets shot, but it's not by Shoshana, it's by Marcel. It's Marcel who then shows compassion for Zola, and Marcel who gets shot by Zola. Shoshana then finishes Zola off, Marcel dies in Shoshana's arms. Really sad, the plan is screwed, but Shoshana is very much alive. At the same time, Bridget's murdered by Lander, ruining the bastard's plan, so they have to come together. Shoshana and the bastards have to join forces and combine their plans to destroy the cinema. We still get Shoshana's film, we still get Lander making a deal with the Allies, but Shoshana joins Aldo. She essentially becomes one of the bastards. I mean, that's all a much more typical way of doing it, and Tarantino has avoided that intentionally, but I think it's to the detriment of the story, which could have been really powerful if he brought it all together like you normally would do. Mm. If you're not convinced, wait till we get to the final scene. <laughs> right. Right, okay. Well, that Nazi propaganda film we're talking about, that's called Nation's Pride. And the parts of it that we see, they were actually directed by Eli Roth. Yeah. And Tarantino had asked him to do it, and Roth brought in his brother Gabriel to direct behind a second camera. And the instructions they got from Tarantino were he didn't want a coherent short as it was meant to feel like snippets from a feature film. But he was so pleased with what they did in the two days he'd allocated to them. He then gave them a third day to do some more shooting. Nice. Yeah, it does look great on the screen, the film, I think. Mm-hmm. And we do finally hear a couple of Wilhelm screams in Nation's Pride. We do. We do. Yes. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Shoshana's revenge speech is delivered in English. In the script, she spoke German, but Melanie Laurent suggested she speak English, so some of the Germans can't understand her before they die, like her family couldn't understand Lander before they died, mm. which I think is a really good touch. That's and great. I also think it's a really good touch that it mirrors that shot of Zola in Nation's Pride, and it's lit the same, and it's shot the same from the same angle. Yeah, that shot of her on the screen, like the face of Jewish vengeance with yeah. the flames. Yeah. It's just brilliant. It's so cinematic. It it's is. Metropolis, isn't it, as well, though? Oh, yeah, it's influenced by that, yeah, I think. Yeah, very much yeah, so, yeah. 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 The ladies of the piece are gone then. Let's see how it all goes for the bastards, should we? Yeah. Yep, and then rewrite it. While this is all going on, the bastards are off having some fun of their own. Donnie and Omar alter their plans when they spot the Fuhrer and go after him with machine guns. At the same time, a capshot Aldo cuts a deal, in more ways than one, with Lander. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, Matt, Fade reaches out and extends its hand. 
Well, I think if you listen carefully, you can hear the sound of every historian's head in the world exploding <laughs> when they watch this. Like Hitler's. Like Hitler's, <laughs> as the scene plays out. Like, yeah. Honestly, I've seen this film so many times now, I still don't know what to make of the scene. I mean, it's ballsy. It's absolutely mental. I just don't know if it's right. Because you've got that incredible imagery of Shoshana's projected face laughing through the fire and the smoke. Yeah, that's amazing, yeah. Taunting those Germans about Jewish revenge. Amazing. But then you get like Hitler getting blown away. And don't get me wrong, who doesn't like seeing Hitler get riddled full of bullets? Yeah. But that's the most cartoonish thing the film does. And it borders on being played for laughs. And it kind of reduces Hitler to a joke in a cartoon body. And I'm just not sure about that juxtaposition with what Shoshana is saying. Because that's very serious and I don't think that juxtaposition works. I mean, obviously, it's not the last time Tarantino's going to rewrite history for his own ends. But I think once upon a time in Hollywood, I think he pulls it off so much better. So, yeah, it's like I admire it for where it goes because it goes somewhere you would never expect and no one else would even attempt to do this. But honestly, I'm just really not sure on it still. Yeah, the whole fantasy ending of the bastards gunning down Goebbels and Hitler, it doesn't work for me to be honest. Mm. I mean, I'm all for some alternative history, but this is a big subject matter to change. Yeah. doesn't mean you can't do it, but the fact that it's all undermined by the huge laughs we've been having in the foyer a few minutes earlier just mm. means I don't buy the bastards killing Hitler at all. I feel nothing when it happens. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's all very well pulled off by Tarantino. The external shot of the cinema blowing up is brilliant, but the narrative that revolves around the bastards, it's kind of lost me, to be honest. I mean, that said, I am still enjoying it, which I think shows mm. how engaging the writing's been up to this point, but I don't like that as a creative choice by Tarantino. Yeah, I think the whole sequence is a bit skewed. I don't think Marcel should be allowed just to walk around and lock doors and seal things mm. up. And Yeah. If the Fuhrer was there, there would just be so many yeah. more. Oh, yeah. There'd be yeah. thousands and thousands of troops there. You wouldn't get near him. You wouldn't get near him. Nowhere no. near the cinema. <laughs> Everyone there would be... You wouldn't have dynamite strapped to your fucking leg, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, at least you'd be searched for the check your, the checking people's papers on the street and they just let yeah. these people yeah. walk in and you just think, well, how you know how realistic do you want to make this? But at that point, it just, it just it turns into a cartoon. Yeah. As soon as they walk into that whole premiere, is almost like a dream. It's like who framed Roger Rabbit all of a sudden? It's, like, it's got that vibe to it, hasn't yeah. it? Where it's just it's anything goes. And I know that film in that scene where Donnie and Omar are in the theaters, it's burning down. That was very dangerous for the actors, and obviously that's Eli Roth in Omar, is played by someone called Omar Omar Doom, which is a great name, by the way. Um, yeah. <laughs> because you and Tess, the flame temperatures were seven hundred and fifty degrees, but when it came to filming, the fire got out of control and went up to two thousand. Jesus, which is obviously much hotter than Roth and Doom were expecting. But the both knew that only had one take to get it, so neither of them left the take until Tarantino shouted cut, and the both ended up being treated for minor burns in hospital. You can kind of see that, though, when he's changing magazines. And mm. they're like, he's like, ah, ah. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably yeah. was real, yeah. 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 There was yeah. a fire marshal on the set, and he said that if they shot for another 15 seconds, the structure would have collapsed, and both Roth and Doom would have been incinerated. Jesus. Fucking hell. <laughs> Eli Roth would do anything for QT, wouldn't he? Oh, he would. He wouldn't care. <laughs> you do anything for US good, don't you? <laughs> it was worth it just to get that Scarface reference from Doom, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Burn me, Quentin. Yeah. I mean, I keep forgetting how ridiculously bonkers that ending is. Mm. It's yeah. just ludicrously loud, <laughs> ludicrously fast. <laughs> Everything's just fucking blowing. The whole thing blows up, and Kurt Russell's screaming. It's just like, what, what the fuck? And then it's just you've got this—the calmness of. 
they're just the truck gets pulled over lander comes out and he's dressed to the nines and he's all yeah. sorted and he's you know you're where your prisoners and we've mm. surrendered and he's almost like doing a little dance with it and it just seems to me like it's just tacked on a little bit it's yeah. really, really worth it for that final, you know, the Tarantino trunk shot, which we've mm. seen with what he yeah. did with Eli Roth. And he's like, you're getting quite good at this, the Carnegie Hall thing. Yeah. But when you see that, it wasn't that good. That SWAT stick, I wasn't, I mean, I'm not an expert on drawing them, but he kind of, <laughs> the, 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 the bottom was a bit, no, the bottom line was a bit skew with on it. But this one, he's got it absolutely spot on because you see him doing it. I mean, that's really cringe inducing. That's like, ah, but it's beautifully mm. done the way he kind of carving that into his head. You know, this may just be my masterpiece. And that is just right on the nose. That's yeah. Tarantino talking straight to the audience going, I don't give a fuck what you what you think about what you've just seen. I think it's a masterpiece. Bang. Written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Apparently in real life, lots of Nazi officers, some successfully, some not, tried to cut deals with the Allies in the final kind of throes of the Axis. So Landa doing that here right. is rooted in reality, which I like. But mm. B.J. Novak, who plays Udovic, Udovic, yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah. One question. Why? We've not seen him since Aldo's The German Will Fierro speech two hours ago, and even yeah, then yeah. all he said was, yes, sir. What yeah. is he doing in the final scene? Not just the yeah. final scene, the final shot. It's a crazy choice from QT for me. Udovic has done nothing to deserve this treatment. It yeah. begins the power of the ending for me. Literally, any other character in that finale will be better. So where are the, where's the other bastards then? Where's yeah. everyone else? Yeah. Well, they're all dead, I assume, aren't they? Well, you assume. Yeah. That's the whole point. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. And you're right. It's absolutely ridiculous. It's like Novak's just being like really good mates with QT the night mm. before. He's out yeah. drank him and just lost a bet. And <laughs> Tarantino's like, right, you go in there. Maybe he got Tarantino drunk. She was Maybe. on the foot this time. <laughs> yeah, it must yeah. have been. It's the only explanation. But after what I said earlier, so Shoshana and the Bastards have came together, ideally. They've combined their plans blown up the cinema together. So this final scene, to me, shouldn't be between Aldo, Landa and Udovic. Forget Udovic. It should be Aldo, Landa and Shoshana. Mm -hmm. She's now one of the bastards, which gives her character a huge arc. And Aldo's like, I guess you're one of us now then, or something. Gives a knife to Shoshana. (laughs) And it's Shoshana (laughs) who cuts a swastika into Landa's head. Payback time. And that final shot, that classic low-angle Tarantino POV, isn't Aldo Mm -hmm. and Udovic. It's Aldo and Shoshana. Completion yeah. of her arc, massive final shot, resolution of her story with Landa. Aldo says, I think this might just be our masterpiece. Boom, fade to black, play Morricone, see you at the Oscars. <laughs> Instead, we get Udovic. All yeah. week I've been thinking about why Tarantino made that choice of getting Udovic in there, and honestly, the only reason I can think of is that he did it to piss me off. <laughs> <laughs> it could have been massive, it could have been his masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I did it, okay? <laughs> All right. All right. That's why I did it. All right. John from all the right movies. All right. <laughs> and Matt, what do you think? Have you rewritten the ending? I just love your ending, John. It makes so much more sense. I mean, yeah, honestly, just uh-huh. everything both you guys said is what I feel about this ending. BG, you know, if I could, me, I think a lot of people, you just go, that's Ryan from The Office. Why is he there? Does I know. He come yeah. from all of a sudden, just... <laughs> A funny guy, like him in the office, but he's not a bastard, is he? You don't look him go, oh, yeah, he, he puts the, the shits up the Nazis, doesn't he? The little man. Little man. That's <laughs> the only good line in the film that he's got when he's like, yeah. they call me the little man. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So, yeah, the ending, it does sum up a lot of the problems for me. It does sum up, you know, where this could and probably should have gone. But then, typical Tarantino, this might be my masterpiece. Credits. Yeah, as we've said, BJ Novak plays Jutovic. And he was most well known for appearing in the US version of The Office as Ryan. 
They were shooting the office at the time, and his character's absence was explained by saying he went to Thailand with a bunch of high school students. <laughs> yeah. So they, they let him go <laughs> and do it and come back. Yeah. BJ Novak is great, and I do love the guy, and I think he's great in the office, but yeah. he's not that good of an actor. No, he's, no not. he's not. He's not a good enough actor to be in the final scene of a Quentin Tarantino film. No, Definitely not. not. No. No. And actually, in a later episode of The Office, Michael Scott, that's Steve Carell, refers to Ryan as the little man, which is the nickname the Nazis oh, have yeah. for Udovic. Oh, nice. Well, Tarantino, he had the actors playing the bastards. He made them go through a day of scalping training in preparation, and he told them that the three best scalpers would be rewarded with close-ups of them doing that in the film, and one of them was B.J. Novak, which is why we get that shot of him scalping Landers Driver at the end. Yeah, the scalping, I love it. And the swastika mm-hmm. carving, great. Those are great yeah. ideas. But not everything is a great idea in this film. Just the no. wrong people. <laughs> yeah, it's the wrong people. Just yeah. the wrong people wrong doing people it. Wrong people doing it. Get Steve Carell in there instead. And we're at the end of Inglorious Bastards. A finale that dropped from what came before, for me anyway, but a lot of people think it might just be Tarantino's masterpiece. A lot of people do. Including him, probably. Reception and awards. Well, after all of that, Inglorious Bastards was released in August 2009, but how was it received? Mm. Well, Matt the Stats here to reveal all. Matt Ostado. So the floor is yours, Matt. Mm. Well, it was a huge box office success. On a budget of $70 million, it grossed $321.5 million in total, and it was the 18th biggest hit of the year. The top three of that year were Ice Age, Dawn of the Dinosaurs, Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, and Avatar as number one. Right. Of course. But those Ice Age films, huge money spinners them as well. Yeah. Yeah. Inglorious Bastards did pass Pulp Fiction, though, as Tarantino's highest-grossing film at the time. Mm. Yeah. So, massive success. On German adverts, all SWAT stickers were removed or covered up, as Universal weren't sure if the SWAT stickers violated German law, where Nazi symbols are banned, except for reasons like historical accuracy. And actually, I watched this again last night on Netflix, and they've been taken off that as well. Have they oh, really? really? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Right. Yeah. I don't think this film counts as historically accurate. To be honest, no, no, no. this is it's right up there with Braveheart. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least it's intentional here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and moving on to the critics, we always start with Roger Ebert. So, mm. Roger the Dodger, what did he think of Inglorious Bastards? Do you think? Ooh. I'm going to go three, solid three. Uh, I'll go two. I don't think he would have been that keen on it. Oh, full house from Rog. Four stars out of four. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Okay. And he said. Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards is a big, bold, audacious war movie that will annoy some, startle others, <laughs> and demonstrate once again that he's the real thing, a director of quixotic delights. Ah, you love cinema, though. We should have guessed that. Yeah, fair enough. Enough. yeah. Like, it's yeah, film about true, cinema. David Denby of The New Yorker said, The film is skillfully made, but it's too silly to be enjoyed, even as a joke. Tarantino has become an embarrassment. Wow. His virtuosity as a maker of images has been overwhelmed by his inanity as an idiot de la cinematheque. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Not his masterpiece then, according to Denby. Right, okay. No. Terence Trent Denby. <laughs> the English translation of that French phrase is cinema library idiot. <laughs> wow. I'm going to get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Keep watching the store, fellas. Keep watching. <laughs> And Empire Magazine gave the film four stars out of five and said, it's Tarantino at his most playful, endlessly quotable, with brilliant writing even by his standards and great performances to boot. Hell, Mm. it could be his masterpiece after all. Wow, there you go. Big praise. 
And then on Rotten Tomatoes, Inglorious Bastards has a critic's approval of 89% and an audience approval rating of 88%. Huge. Then on IMDb, it has 8.4 out of 10, which puts it yeah. 69th in the IMDb top 250 list. And that is one place above The Dark Knight Rises and one below Aliens. Which Wow. That's a triple feature and a half, isn't it? Imagine watching well, those three back to back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You need a long weekend. Yeah, <laughs> a lost weekend. And then at the Oscars, Inglorious Bastards, as we've talked about, won one, which was Best Supporting Actor for Christoph Waltz, and it was nominated for seven others: Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Film Editing, which we've already talked about. But along with that, Best Sound Mixing for Michael Minkler, and Best Sound Editing for Wiley Stateman. Not Wiley Coyote, which is a shame. No. 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 So, Inglorious Bastards was received pretty well in 2009. QT's biggest commercial hit to that point, largely positive reviews, and today, still very highly thought of, critically and publicly. Mm-hmm. Didn't yeah. do badly at all, did it? No, no, no. No. Sequels and Influence. There were no sequels to Inglorious Bastards. There could have been if QT hadn't ended the war and killed almost every character, but he did. (laughs) Any Tarantino (laughs) film is notable in its way, though. So what is the legacy of Inglorious Bastards, do we think? Has it been Mm. influential, Matt? I think it's been influential on himself, because I think with retrospect, this feels like a dry run for what the latter part of his career is going to be like. This Mm. is his first attempt to marry that very distinctive style he has with proper grown-up issues. So here, the war, the extermination of the Jews, and then he would do the same with slavery and the ramifications of the Civil War in his next two films. His most recent film is, you know, it's the death of the Hollywood dream because of the Manson family, so big themes that he's engaged with. And as well, this one, it's a dry run for reinventing history, which we'd see in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well. Yeah, I think Inglorious Bastards is probably a film where you can see its influences far more than you can see what it's influenced. It's a clear hark back to yeah. like sort of mm-hmm. the Dirty Dozen and Kelly's Heroes. Where it differs, though, is that Tarantino uses the backdrop of the Second World War as a platform on which to write one of his greatest love letters to movies. And I mean, he's written a few. He's like Zola. Yeah. Leave it alone. Yeah. <laughs> but... I think Babylon by Damien Chazelle does a similar thing in using a different time period to express like an obsession with films. Yeah, so yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. It might have inspired him in some ways. Mm-hmm. And bizarrely, Celine Song, who wrote and directed Past Lives, oh, she yeah. said Inglorious Bastards changed her life. Wow. Well, there you go. Yeah, she said the complete irreverence of it felt so freeing. You can treat history like it doesn't matter at all. You can just burn it all down. Literally, in Tarantino's case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I mean, I think the biggest influence probably has been on Tarantino's own career. Inglorious Bastards cemented an ongoing relationship with Robert Richardson, with Christoph Waltz, Brad Pitt, and it set Tarantino down a path of alternative history storytelling, something mm-hmm. he did again, and in my opinion, quite a bit better in Once mm-hmm. Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I agree. I think it's, again, I, I do think it was influential on the war films that came after it, notably Fury, I think, took quite yeah. a bit from it. Yeah. Uh, Dunkirk, I don't think would have been made if, if Tarantino had didn't have the success that he did with the World War II film at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, Hacksaw Ridge as well. I think them mm-hmm. kinds of films, they've just been, oh, actually, we can't still make these films. They are still poignant. They do have a, a point. They do have a story. People still want to hear about the suffering and the reality of it. Son of Saul as well. That's another film that's, again, just really ballsy. But the subject matter, I think he made quite relevant. 
and a lot of good films have come from the back of that but yeah like you guys have already said i think the biggest influence from this film is on him himself i don't think django and chain the hateful eight would be as big or as grand or as sweeping mm. as they are mm. without this yeah no follow-ups to inglorious bastards which i wouldn't have been against to be honest mm. i mean if you made my version it's your ending <laughs> <laughs> And, I mean, any Tarantino film has an influence and legacy, I think. He's that big. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, he's got a lot to say, and he knows how to say it. Yeah. All the right movies ranking. So, we've reached the end. Now we're giving our final summaries and scores for the film. So, Wesley, you put this one up. Your summary uh-huh. and score for Inglorious Bastards, please. Oh, that's a bingo! Saved a philosophy. Is that, is that how you say it? <laughs> <laughs> it's just bingo. <laughs> for me, I, I loved coming back to this film. I loved it. When I first saw it, it hit like a ton of bricks, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And I love watching anyone watching this for the first time. Unfortunately, the more you watch it, the more you can find that it does lack in some areas and it doesn't deliver for me as a consistent film. It'd be one where if I'm doing stuff and I'll watch the opening sequence and then I can go off and do the dishes for a bit and then I'll yeah. come back because yeah. I know that oh, that's a bit where this, oh, it's, it's the cafe bit and you get shouted and you come and watch that bit. Oh, it's the cantina bit, right? Yeah. Oh, it's the big ending, right? So you've got these bits where it's just exceptional yeah. and then bits where it's just, it's not as exceptional. And I don't think that makes it a bad film because the non-exceptional bits, like we've said, Oh, uh, the director's tens, yeah. and it's just—it's yeah. just the fact that it's Tarantino, and the exceptional stuff's just too exceptional, and the other stuff just pales in comparison to it. So for me, it doesn't get full marks because if it was exceptional across the board, it would, but it does dip, and because it dips now and again, I'm going to give it a nine on ten. Yeah, well, similarly, I hadn't seen Inglorious Bastards for quite a few years before you put it up, Westy, and I very yeah. much enjoyed revisiting it for this episode. There's a lot that I love. The performances, especially from the actors who speak several languages, and even more especially Christoph Waltz, are brilliant. The visuals are as stunning as we've came to expect from Tarantino and Robert Richardson, and the writing, at its best, is exceptional. Lots of zingers, obviously it's Tarantino, but the themes explored around the powers of language and mostly cinema blow me away, to be honest. Mm. And the Lapadite and La Louisiane scenes are a master filmmaker work. Genuinely breathtaking stuff. And then... He fluffs the landing, doesn't he? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. for me anyway, but killing off Shoshana, not bringing the two plots together in a satisfying way, not having her and the bastards even be aware of each other, I find those baffling narrative choices. And I love Tarantino, but I struggle to get past that with this film. I think it genuinely could have been a masterpiece. It could have been my favourite ever war film, possibly yeah. Tarantino's best, but instead, it's a film I like a lot and is an 8 out of 10 for me. Right, right. okay. And Matt, one more time, but let me really hear the music in it. <laughs> well, I'm in the summary business, and cousin, business is a booming. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like I said earlier, I've never been able to get that level of enjoyment in this as I did that first view, and it really knocked me out. And that's a shame. Yeah. And I think it is a bit of a curate's egg of a film. Some incredible performances, some performances that don't really work for me. Some of the best scenes he's ever written and directed in a fairly disjointed narrative that doesn't quite pull together at the end for the punch that it should have and it does have this clash of tones throughout i think it's an important film for tarantino because it tells you where he's going next in his career and i think what does come next refines everything he tries to do here and ultimately i I don't think he writes this as well as he directs it if this was the alternative 
ATRM universe where I'm rating this after that first viewing, it's a 10 all day long. Oh, but yeah. Well, we're in the universe where I've seen it a few times, and it's mid-level Tarantino for me. So those flaws bring it down to an 8.5. Oof. Well, now it's time for the real-life version of Inglorious Bastards by seeing what Twitter, now known as X, <laughs> thinks of the film. Some of our followers' comments, Blake, B-L-A-K-E, at a underscore sit down underscore guy. I don't know what's going on there, but he said, no. <laughs> What always impressed me about Inglorious Bastards was I went in expecting the World War II Men on a Mission movie, and that's not really what we got. The mm. Bastards almost feel like supporting characters, some never utter a line, and yet the film yeah. is just tremendous. QT's masterpiece. Right. Okay. Blakey loves QT, mm-hmm. and on the buses, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> Hattie Jakes. <laughs> Joe Sigley Kane at Joe Sigley 83 said, I gave it a 10 not only because I love Tarantino. The acting from everyone is incredible, but also because I get so drawn in when I'm watching it, I forget I'm reading subtitles, which is quite rare for a foreign language film. Mm. Yeah, the use of different languages is yeah. superb. Throughout it's really thing. well done, that, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's when you're reading the actual foreign language as a subtitle as well, yeah. it's yeah. fucking unreal, and you don't yeah, realise you are. <laughs> One of our patrons, Anna Randall, gave a football pundit-style review and said, it's a film of two halves for me. (laughs) (laughs) I would give every scene with Melanie Laurent and Christoph Waltz and the Fassbender scene a 10 and the Inglorious Bastard Mm. scenes a 5. If they weren't in it, Mm. the film would be a masterpiece for me. Right. Mm -hmm. That's kind of where I've been coming from. And to be honest, that wasn't rare feedback either. That the worst thing about Inglorious Bastards is the Inglorious Bastards for some people. Yeah. 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 Bit of a problem when your film's called Inglorious Bastards. Bastard, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, normally, I'd only read out three comments, but I couldn't not include this from another one oh, of okay. our patrons. So Dan Roberts said, My number one movie of all time. Every New Year's Eve since 2015, I would stay in with my granddad and watch this film. Right. Christoph Waltz's performance is possibly the greatest antagonist role of all time, and this film provides three of the most tense scenes in cinema. Sadly, my granddad passed away last week, but I will oh. be continuing our tradition for many years to come and know he will be watching with me. Oh, it's lovely. Yeah, fair play. Our deepest condolences, Dan. Yeah. Well, that does yes, sound like yeah. a great tradition. You should continue. It does. Keep it going, keep it going, Dan. That's what it's about. Absolutely, absolutely. And altogether, our followers rated the film as, what do you think, out of 10? Oh, it's going to be all over the place. It's going to be all over. The... I'd go 8. <laughs> I'd probably say 8. Yeah, yeah. I'll go 8 as well. It was a slightly surprisingly high 9 out of 10. Oh, okay. Well, that's a, yeah, I wanted to say 9, but I didn't want to be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, nice one. I was I was right. Did that mean I win? What do I win? <laughs> <laughs> so that gives Inglorious Bastards 34.5 out of 40 in total. That is a bingo, as they say. That is. Just bingo. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it on Inglorious Bastards. Hopefully you haven't grown weary of our monkey shines. But I think it's fine. All this has been chewed out before by us, yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Next time out, the little hand says it's time to rock and roll. Westy, Matt and Luke are off to Village of the Year, Sandfad, to talk the greater good and hot fuzz. Yeah. Yes, we are. You mothers. Should be a funny one. <laughs> We're going to be the big cops in the small town. To find out more about becoming a patron, supporting what we do, and accessing our archive and bonus episodes, please visit patreon.com forward slash all the right movies or click the subscribe link on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all of your other podcast platforms. Five stars, please. Even if you don't think yes. that, just like yes. it. Absolutely. Just do Why it. Why not? Yeah. 
Socially, you can keep up with all the right movies on Twitter or X, where we are at AT Right Movies. We post threads on there that tell the stories behind classic films. Everything we post has been said by somebody involved in the production or comes from three separate sources, same as on our podcast. So check those right out that they're right now. Yeah. We are on TikTok, where our handle is at All the Right Movies. We're on Blue Sky too, at AllTheRightMovies.com. You can find us on YouTube, where our channel is called All the Right Movies. On Instagram and Threads, we are at All the Underscore Right Movies. You can join our movie group on Facebook, where there's loads of great movie chats going on. And our website, full of great features, is AllTheRightMovies.com. Mm-hmm. Sure is. We're all off now to learn the correct German hand signal for three aftershocks each. <laughs> you are. <laughs> Come back next time for Hot Fuzz, and for now, it's adieu, goodbye, au revoir, and arrivederci. Arrivederci. Margarita.